When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It is great to be back. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving holiday weekend. I certainly did. I'll share with you some highlights throughout the course of the next few hours. By now, you have probably heard the story. I know it has been making the rounds for the last uh, 24 to 36 hours. You know, it's funny. um, When I was last on the air, I think it was Thursday, we covered a little bit of Kanye West talking about how he was going to dinner at Mar-a-Lago. Remember the comments that he made with Milo Yiannopoulos and how Milo was apparently conscripted to working on his uh, campaign. They did a video going to Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, I don't know about you, but the, the I almost feel as if Kanye West has so little credibility that I didn't even necessarily believe what he was saying in terms of um, in terms of saying that he was going to Mar-a-Lago. But he went to Mar-a-Lago, and he brought a very interesting guest with him. Guess who's coming to dinner? 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 Nicholas Fuentes. Now, I have a confession to make. I, before two days ago, did not even know who Nick Fuentes was. Now, you, don't you love all these people who they sit there saying, how could this person have sat down with Nick Fuentes? If Nick Fuentes was sitting in front of me right now, I would have no idea. But presumably, if you're going to have dinner with somebody, you Google them. Now, based on the reports that are coming out of this uh, this meeting, sources close to Trump have said that he didn't know who Fuentes was. And basically, they described this meeting, this dinner with Kanye and, uh, and Fuentes. Uh, they spoke to Axios and among other outlets. And they described that uh, Trump was very taken with Fuentes, very impressed that a 24-year-old young man was able to rattle off statistics. And uh, he was able to recall state speeches dating back to his campaign from 2016. Fuentes told Trump that he represented a side of Trump's base that was disappointed with his newly cautious approach, especially with what some far-right activists view as a lack of support for those charged in the January 6th Capitol attack. Trump didn't disagree with Fuentes, but said he has advisors who want him to read off teleprompters and be more presidential. To be honest, this is what the source told Axios. To be honest, I don't believe the president knew who the hell Fuentes was. 
So that has been what Trump has said on Truth Social. Uh, That's his social media platform. So my question for you is twofold. Here's the first question. One, if you're a Trump supporter, really if you're anybody, but if you're a Trump supporter, voted for him twice enthusiastically and are excited to vote for him a third time, does the fact that Trump had dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes change your opinion? Now, why is Nick Fuentes so controversial? Among other things, uh, some of the comments that Fuentes has made, he's basically a Holocaust denier, or at the very least, a Holocaust revisionist. He has a long history of the same kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric that people like Kanye West have a history of. So it does not appear that at this dinner, Fuentes said anything to give himself away as being anti-Jewish. So based on what's being reported by Trump's people, Trump, Kanye West, and Fuentes... They they are all essentially saying that the topic of the Holocaust, Jews, that didn't come up. So it's not as if Trump would have heard Fuentes say something at this dinner and say, whoa, I got to get out of here. I don't know that uh, I don't know that I should be talking to you. Apparently, this was just a regular dinner. Right. And Fuentes was very laudatory of Trump. But apparently, at least it's being reported that Trump got a phone call during the dinner. And there's a couple, after that phone call, Trump's whole demeanor changed. Now, it could be Trump might have been insulted because Kanye West asked Trump to be his running mate because Kanye West is running in 2024. Or it could be that an advisor called Trump on his cell phone and said, hey, Mr. President, get the heck out of there. You probably shouldn't be seen with Kanye West, and you definitely shouldn't be seen with his lunatic Nick Fuentes. So, twofold question. One, and I think the second one is a better one, but I want you to answer both. If you're a Trump supporter, does this change your opinion of Trump in 2024? The fact that he would have dinner with people like this. And number two, um, if you are, does it make you less likely to support him? Or are you just as likely to support him now as if before this dinner. Um, what do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Additionally, here's, let's assume Trump's telling the truth, and I think he is, that he didn't know who Nick Fuentes was, because I don't know who Nick Fuentes is. I know who Kanye West is. Should Trump have been having dinner with Kanye West? Now, the New York Post... A conservative outlet, although it's you know it's an anti-Trump conservative outlet, they said no. They provided a list of reasons that Trump should not have had dinner with Kanye West. They talk about Kanye being or Ye. I know he's probably he's properly called Ye now. They talk about Ye um, being canceled by Adidas and by showing all these people that he was doing business with pornography, the things that he's tweeted about Jews. The New York Post and others say that Trump should absolutely not have had uh, dinner with Kanye West, given his anti-Semitic outbursts. Ben Shapiro, who's a conservative, uh, but he's sort of like a never-Trump conservative, he tweeted the following. A good way not to accidentally dine 
with a vile racist and anti-Semite you don't know is not to dine with a vile racist and anti-Semite you do know, meaning Kanye West. So I, um, I saw a lot of this, and I'm thinking, of course not. Forget. I mean, why should he put himself in a position to have dinner with someone like Kanye West? Kanye West has said reprehensible things, not only about Jews, but, you know, about a whole bunch of people. And the guy is clearly, at best, mentally unstable, at worst, potentially destructive. So that was my initial reaction. And then I read as much as I could on this, as much as I could in terms of um, people's opinion. And I try to read it with an open mind. And I read, I see, I read so much, I don't remember where I saw this, but essentially... I saw some, um, you know, I saw some someone somewhere wrote, look, people have, and I'm paraphrasing here, people have dinner with bad guys all the time, um, especially if you're a world leader. You know, Trump had dinner with Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un probably had his own uncle fed to a, a, a pack of wild hogs. Kim Jong-un does not allow any sort of protests. It is one of the least free places on earth. He has had dinner with President Xi, uh, an autocrat who doesn't give his own people any freedom. And I think a strong case can be made that by reaching out diplomatically to these people, Kim Jong-un, President Xi Jinping, that it resulted in a better deal for the United States than was previously the case. And Trump actually won for America by engaging with these people. So um, also, I'm trying to think in my own life, would I have dinner with someone that I know is a racist or an anti-Semite, especially if someone if it's someone that I have a previous relationship with? And again, I, I read so much commentary and I tried to keep track of where I was getting this stuff from, but I don't remember But um, if someone has wrong ideas and anti-Semitism and hate of any kind is a horribly wrong idea, if someone is misguided, does that mean you should never have dinner with them, especially if it's someone you know? And I don't think that the answer is yes to that. Now, obviously, Kanye West is not a world leader, not yet anyway. He's running for president. But... um, and he is not in the same category as Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un. I get that. But even if he is misguided about race, about Jews, about a wide variety of things, does that mean you should never have dinner with them? I don't think so. Right? So I have been – initially I was adamant that it was a mistake for Trump to have dinner with Kanye West. Now I am um, I'm starting to back off that a little bit. I have to be I have to be honest. And I am not willing to say he should have had dinner with him. But I'm a little less adamant that you should write off anybody that holds any anti-Semitic beliefs because. You know, not to repeat everything I said on our Thanksgiving show, but if someone's wrong about something, how do you change their mind? If you're not willing to communicate with them, don't you 
have to be willing to communicate them with them. I don't think anybody would accuse, even if you're not a Trump supporter, I don't think anybody would accuse Donald Trump of anti-Semitism. I mean, his coziness to the Israeli government, his uh, the fact that his daughter, his son-in-law, who was also his chief advisor, and his grandchildren are Jewish. I, I, look, I don't think Trump is anti-Semitic in the least, right? I don't think his harshest critic would say that he's anti-Semitic in the least. But a lot of people are troubled by the fact that he hasn't put out a statement on Truth Social renouncing Fuentes and Kanye West. My question is, does this change your opinion of Trump? Are you any less likely to support him now? That's the first question. The second supporter is, put Fuentes aside. Should he have dinner? Have had dinner with Kanye West? Yes or no? Those are the two questions that I want you to answer. And you got to do me a favor. I cannot deal with someone, anyone, everyone, calling in and saying, yeah, but Barack Obama had dinner with Al Sharpton. Barack Obama was friends with Jeremiah Wright. Barack Obama was friends with this person and that person. Gag me. Uh, Because the argument is just so predictable. And I have no... You know how some people are intolerant of uh, this racial group or this religious group? I have zero tolerance for whataboutism because that whole tit-for-tat whataboutism, it can go on forever. If you say, well, everyone's giving Trump a hard time for doing this, but Obama did that. Then the Obama people say, well, Obama did this, sure, but Bush did that. Then the Bush people say, well, Bush did this, but yeah, Clinton did that. And you could literally go back to the days of George Washington. It's, it's just ridiculous. There's no winning a whataboutism argument. So I'm just telling you right now, If you mention the words Barack Obama had dinner with, I'm I'm ending the phone call. Here was Kanye West's take on this dinner with uh, Trump and uh, Nick Fuentes. Kanye West, who is now part of the Twitter amnesty that Elon Musk has awarded everybody, talked about his dinner with the former president and with Nick Fuentes. I think the thing that Trump was most perturbed about, me asking him to be my vice president, I think that was like lower on the list of things that caught him off guard. It was the fact that I walked in with intelligence. So Trump is really impressed with Nick Fuentes. And Nick Fuentes, unlike so many of the lawyers and so many people that he was left with on his 2020 campaign, he's actually a loyalist. When he didn't know what the lawyers is, you'll still have your lawyer list. And when all the lawyers said, forget it, Trump's done, there were loyalists running up in the White House, right? And my question would be, why, when you had the chance, did you not free the January Sixers? And I came to him as someone who loves Trump, and I said, go and get Corey back. Go and get these people that the media tried to cancel and told you to step away from. He basically gives me this would-be mob-esque kind of story talking to some kid from the south side of Chicago trying to sound mobby or whatever. He goes into the story about all that he went through to get Alice Johnson out of jail and how he didn't do it for Kim, but he did it for me. But then he goes on to say that Kim is a and you can tell her I said that. And I was thinking like, that's the mother of my children. Since we know, and all the Christians in America that love Trump know that Trump is a conservative, we're going to demand that you hold all policies directly to the Bible. When Trump started basically screaming at me at the table telling me I was going to lose, I mean, has that ever worked for anyone in history? (laughs) You're going to lose. Tell him he's going to lose. lose. I'm like, well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, Trump. You're talking to Ye. 
So um, this is a felt Murray Rothbard, um, who I'm assuming is a conservative commentator. I don't know much about him. He tweeted the following. He tweeted an article to uh, a, a, a link to an article. Daryl Davis, the black musician who converts Ku Klux Klan members. This is one of the things that I read that I thought was interesting. What's wrong with conversing with people who hold different views from you, even if they're abhorrent ones? It's not an endorsement. Trump stated that he didn't know who he was, nor that he was attending. Should Daryl Davis, that's uh, the black musician who converts Ku Klux Klan people, should Daryl Davis not have met with KKK members? Now, it is not a perfect analogy because Daryl Davis knows he's meeting with a KKK member and he's going to this dinner with the intention of getting these KKK members de-brainwashed, essentially. Trump didn't do that. He didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. Um, so put Fuentes aside. And it doesn't seem like um, anti-Semitism was high on the list of things that uh, Trump and Kanye West were slated to talk about. But look, this is somebody that is a presidential candidate, Kanye West. And um, had been a supporter in the past. What say you? Does it make you less likely to support Trump, number one? And putting Fuentes aside, should he be having dinner with Kanye? I have gone from hard no to undecided on that second question. 800-848-9222. By the way, Nick Fuentes, again, if you're like me, who didn't know who this guy was until two days ago, here is a little bit of uh, Nick Fuentes' Talking about uh, the Holocaust. I've heard enough about this Holocaust. I've heard enough about it. I don't want to hear one more time about it. Enough about that. How about we hear about the generosity of America that brought you here? We hear Holocaust museums. How about some gratitude museums? How about some gratitude for Christendom? How about some gratitude for European civilization? Some gratitude for America? Instead, all we get is this guilting all we get is this blood libel insults how dare you you want to talk about a holocaust you know the real holocaust was jesus christ being crucified that was the real holocaust that's tough that's tough now again i I give trump the benefit of the doubt i don't think he knew who fuentes was because i don't think nick fuentes is a household name but again shame on the president and his gatekeepers such as they are it's not clear that the president has many gatekeepers the former president for uh, letting uh, Fuentes in, right? You'd think if you're not on the guest list, you're not getting into uh, not getting in there. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Question one is: Will this change your support? Question two is: Should Trump have had dinner with Kanye? What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Amy is on Long Island. Hello, Amy. Uh, Democrat Hakeem Jeffries. Let's talk about him. Okay. Over. Not doing it. Not doing it. We are not playing the whataboutism game. Not doing it. I can't do it because I'm, I'll am i be bored to tears and we could do it for four hours. Not doing it. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Robert in New Jersey. Hello, Robert. Yeah, hello, Frank. Nice, uh, uh, kind of like a new listener. But well, I, I'm kind of appreciative of your new listenership. <laughs> I'm enjoying you between you and uh, Curtis. I like that uh, bantering you got going on. Thank uh, you. We have a good yeah. time. Thank you. Um, to answer your question, you know, I agree. Um, but first of all, no, it's not going to change my mind. Uh, Meaning you you were a Trump supporter and you remain a Trump supporter even after this kerfuffle over the dinner. 
Correct. Mm-hmm. I am definitely not going to change. And even this thing with DeSantis, I actually think he could be maybe his uh, vice president. Um, but that's another story. Uh, there's so many different variables there. But to answer your question, no. And the second thing, I had the this, this same first impression that I'm saying to myself, is this brilliant that this guy is going to meet with this guy or sit with this guy? Because like you're saying, I'm agreeing on the, the topics that you brought up. Bringing this guy in, if he knew who he was, but if he didn't know who he was, that was mishandling by the uh, the Trump administration. Well, look, I don't think he knew who he was, right? I mean, uh, I don't. I, I, I've never heard of him either. I agree with you. Yeah, I don't think you know him. I think somebody uh, missed a beat there. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, look, I, I accept Trump at his word, which he thought he was having dinner with Kanye West and Kanye West brings some other guy. Trump figures, all right, he's a friend of Kanye West. Kanye West is uh, close to a billionaire. At least he was before this Adidas cancellation. He's a right. guy that I know. He's a star. And, you know, that counts for a lot with Trump. If you're a celebrity and if you're self-made and you've made your own money and, and uh, you know, done a lot of interesting things, that counts for a lot with Trump. I remember one of the uh, one time that I met Trump, I was producing producing a documentary about Roger Stone and um, he finishes his interview with us. And then he looks at me after, you know, finishing the interview and he said, are, are, are you, are you the owner of this whole thing? And I said, no, nah, well, producer, you know, I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's owned by the investors. And uh, he shrugged, he says, and he was, he was impressed. He said, ah, oh. and I was young at the time. This is about 10 years ago. He says, oh, you mm-hmm. know, young guys. Nice. So, uh, and that was somebody that Trump never heard of, meaning me. Uh, you can imagine yeah. how impressive he finds a, uh, someone like Kanye West, right? So, um, so Robert says this is not su- changing his support at all. 800-848-9222. Does it change your support? 800-848-9222. Leah is in Brooklyn. Hello, not Leah. Going. Hello. Hello. Hi, Leah. Hi, how are you? Great. So to answer to your questions, okay, in my opinion, I don't think having dinner with these two people is going going to change the opinion of those that are historic supporters. But I feel that those people who are teetering and not exactly sure where they stand as far as Trump is, he really needs to garner goodwill. And I think it was a mistake. It really was a mistake, not to his staunch supporters, but to those who are unsure. He has to do everything in his power to sit with the right people. Well, so I do think it was a mistake. So, Leah, uh, putting aside the analysis of um, the political analysis, which you gave quite effectively, I think. Tell me about you. Uh, how did you view Trump before this dinner? Were you somebody that was uh, a Trump diehard? Were you leaning towards Trump? Were you considering Trump? And then tell me how the media coverage of this dinner has affected your opinion, if at all. Does not affect my opinion. I am a Trump all the way, completely 1,000%. That being said, as far as, you know, the world at large, I do feel it's a mistake vis-a-vis the fact that his his image has to be, he has to shine up his image. And since we want him to sort of make it possibly win, he has to garner the goodwill. Would you have dinner with Kanye West? Yeah, yes. you would. You would. Thank you. I, uh, uh, um, oh, wait, 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 yes, I think I would. You yes. Would. Okay. You, and I appreciate yeah, you answering. Not with honestly. the other guy. Yeah. Not yeah. With no, Nick, again, not, again, no, I, yeah, I, I think yeah, I'm putting yeah. aside the other guy because, um, oh, I see. Uh, you know, I don't think Trump knew who that guy was. So I'm not. I don't think he he would have. He would have. Thank you, Leah. You know, it's funny. I was talking about this with my sister and my wife, uh, my sister Claudia, and my wife yesterday. Keep in mind that name for thousand dollar minute a little later, but. Um, I 
I asked them the same question. I said, would you have dinner with Kanye West? And both of them said, but my sister said, if I was a politician, if I was running for president, no. I said, no, 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 you're you. You're you, Claudia Morano. You, you're just you. What, are you. what are you doing? You having dinner with Kanye West? Her answer was yes. I asked Rachel the same question. I said, um, would you have dinner with Kanye West? Her answer was the same as Claudia's. She said, I wouldn't if I was running for president, but I would uh, just as me. And I think one of the things that people find appealing about Trump, and I'll be honest, I voted for Trump twice, and it's one of the things that I found appealing about Trump, is that he doesn't come across like an elitist, like a politician. He makes the same sort of decisions as a presidential candidate or a president that he would if he were just an ordinary guy down the street. But uh, obviously I don't like that he has not still put out a statement denouncing Kanye West statements and denouncing Nicholas Fuente's statements. But I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to wrap my head around, you've heard um, the things that Kanye West has said, not just about Jews, but about a bunch of other people. You've read the stories of him um, make forcing business executives to watch 10 minutes of pornography, hardcore pornography. Is that the kind of person that Trump should have dinner with? And initially my answer was absolutely not, and now I'm undecided. And I've been undecided the whole day. Curious what you think. One, does this change your support at all? Especially if you're Jewish. Two, putting aside Fuentes, was it a mistake for Trump to have dinner with Kanye West? We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is E.T. by Katy Perry, featuring the artist formerly known as Kanye West. E is what they call him now. Uh, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. And um, I'll t- I'm really excited for what's coming up an hour from now. going to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Young. I caught Jonathan Young on an episode of William Shatner's TV show on the History Channel, Unexplained. Have you seen this show? The next time, we're, if we're able to get Shatner on the show again, uh, maybe with a helping hand from our boss, John Katsimatidis, the next time uh, we talk to Shatner, we got to focus on this show, The Unexplained. It is great. Uh, I had seen some episodes of the show before. I thought it was great. And um, one of our listeners reminded me that it was on, because I don't always remember. There's too many things that are on. And I went down this rabbit hole of watching segment after segment. They do some great segments just exploring things that are unexplained. And I caught this one segment all about King Arthur. Now, you know uh, King Arthur. 
King Arthur and Camelot, there's so many rumors. Uh, there's so much legend about the myth of King Arthur. He's been memorialized so many times in literature, in the world of uh, in the world of stage, in the world of cinema, including by uh, Robert Taylor in the Knights of the Round Table, 1953. Does each man know the plan? Every man is in his place and every man has his orders. Do they but obey them and Mordred will never forget this day. Mordred will not forget this day. May he not live to. And may this be the sword that bids him sweet farewell. King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, an incredible legend. But what if, just what if, the story of King Arthur was true? Now, on the one hand, it sounds pretty fantastic, right? That this boy could stumble upon this sword and this sword that nobody can get out of the rock and withdraw Excalibur. He's hanging around with wizards like uh, Merlin. Sounds like Game of Thrones, right? But apparently there is some belief in academia that there are some nuggets of truth to the story of King Arthur. We're going to get into this with uh, Dr. Jonathan Young, and he's a really interesting guy. Uh, We'll talk to him about a whole bunch of stuff. Let me continue with your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Arnold in Brooklyn. Hello, Arnold. Wow, that's it, I'm on? I think so, Arnold. Give it a shot. Okay. Uh, I agree with a couple of the previous callers, but I want to say it more forcefully. Trump is not a newcomer to Washington anymore. He made a lot of unforced errors throughout his first administration, Mm -hmm. many of them regarding personnel. Oh, that's for sure. uh, Secretary Secretary of State, no disrespect to the general, but General McMuffin is a great general, and then he's a bum five minutes later. You know, every time he does stuff like this, it costs him 10,000 votes here, 10,000 votes there. He knows that half the country, pardon the expression, is out to get him. Watch your step. Don't do something where they're going to say, look at this. You see, doesn't he have anybody on the staff who's looking out for him? Well, apparently, uh, you know, he doesn't uh, He doesn't listen. I mean, the, you know, I've known a lot of people close to Trump for many years. And that's the one thing they all have in common, which is that um, Trump, um, he listens to everybody. But he makes his own decisions, ultimately, for what he's going to do, even if it's at odds with what everybody else suggests. Thank you, Arnold. 800-848-9222. Oh, we got both Toms in the Bronx on. That's going to be a treat. Maybe we'll put them on together. Let me begin with the original Tom from the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hello. Hello, Tom. Yes. 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 I'd like to say this. That uh, that Trump was just trying to pick this guy's brain and figure out what he was all about. This guy and being when, ye, when or he this figured guy out being, what he, or when be- he figured out what he was all about, I guess they needed a big bottle of Pepto Bismol at the end of the meal. Well, okay, so I, um, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. However. Once he knows that Fuentes has made these comments, which are just radioactive, should he then not have gone to Truth Social, his social media network, and say, I completely denounce 
um, uh, Nicholas Fuentes, the way he did with David Duke back in 2000 when uh, there were people like David Duke that were seemed to be uh, supportive of his prospective presidential campaign, and he repudiated David Duke, repudiated Lenora Filani, went farther. I think he actually repudiated uh, Pat Buchanan back then. Should he have done the same thing with Nick Fuentes? I, well, first of all, how many people knew that he was going to have dinner with him? Yeah, I, I don't know. But I'm saying now, yeah. afterwards, should he have put out a statement and said, I denounce all the things that uh, Fuentes has said with respect to the Holocaust? Right, but how many how many reporters knew that he was going to have dinner with these individuals? I, I, I would speculate none, but um, you know Kanye West is going to broadcast it to the world, to his millions of followers. Kanye West reaches more people with one tweet than I do in a year of doing this show. All Trump had to say was that, look, I listened to this individual and he's a loony. He's a real loony. That's all. Right. Well, so you didn't do that. Hey, Tom, hang on. I'm going to put on the uh, we're going to do Tom on Tom here. I'm going to have you talk to the Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Maybe you guys if you guys hit it off, maybe you guys can hang out out, uh, you know, on Arthur Avenue sometime. Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. You're on with the original Tom from the Bronx. This must be a real thrill for you. I hope so. Mm. Hey, Frank, are you saying that Trump would have been better off with the supremacist than Kanye for dinner? No, no. no, Okay, okay, okay. I got it. Okay, now, this is why I I, I got a couple of things here. Um, How would Conway West know this guy well enough to run with him, knowing what he is, and able to bring him, give me a minute here, and able to bring him to Trump's, without Trump knowing ahead of time who this guy is? I mean... He shouldn't have been with either one of them, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and Kanye and Fuentes, is both, they're the same people. They, they are, no, which one is worse? Yeah, they're uh, both the same. Original time in the Bronx. Let me have you respond yeah. to oh. the Fugazi time. Yeah, well, it, uh, hello. I'd just like yeah. to say that, that all Trump had to just say was, look, I don't, uh, I don't believe in anything this individual says. He has very little knowledge of the story. And that's the way it is. Yeah, but 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 how could Trump not know this guy was coming? Kanye just bring uninvited people to his house. Yeah. He's the ex-president. Yeah, I he know. Should but know this I, again. I, I think I think this is part of Trump's being enamored with celebrity. I think he would have let Kanye bring whoever he wanted to the dinner. Uh, thank you both, Toms in the Bronx. Appreciate it. Hopefully, you guys hit it off. Uh, Kenneth will give you one another's numbers if you guys want to stay in touch. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Also. Uh, I meant to address this with the previous caller. A lot of people have brought up, and again, this is a subject for another day, Trump picking Ron DeSantis as his running mate. That is not going to happen because for a variety of reasons. But the, the you can't have a running mate from the same state. Right. So it's a relatively easy problem to fix because when George Bush picked Dick Cheney, that brilliant choice, Cheney was living in Texas, so Cheney had to change his residency back to Wyoming. So, um, obviously, DeSantis is not going to change his residency from Florida because DeSantis is the governor of Florida. He's not going to give up his job just so that he could run for vice president. At least I don't see that happening. Uh, And I can't see Trump changing his residency just so he can pick DeSantis. I mean... Everything that we know about Donald Trump, that doesn't seem to be in his ballywick 
at all. So um, I, I don't see that happening. All right, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Christine in Manhattan. Hello, Christine. Hello. Hello, Christine. Hi. So I'm yes on both. Um, and I think I think Trump is an incredible diplomat. And I think what he was focusing on was the whole cancel culture stuff, because that was the biggest thing you were hearing, how Adidas and everyone was dropping uh, ye and cancel culture. And also, uh, he's also a diplomat and a negotiator, just like he did with North Korea. And I think he he sees the 1% in people, anybody, and tries to get that person to be the good even if it's just 1% to expand that. And I think, frankly, the Puentes guy, if he knew uh, how horrible the Puentes guy was, he would also see that 1% and try and change their mind mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and negotiate, you know? So I, I don't I, – I think when Donald Trump meets people who are, quote, unquote, bad, I think he does that because he thinks – he can turn it around. Well, that's an interesting philosophy, Christine. So essentially, uh, whether it's Trump or m- maybe a politician that you may not like, you think it's o- it's okay to have dinner with people with repugnant views. Uh, let's say Trump wanted to have dinner with um, with Louis Farrakhan, for instance, that you'd be okay with that too. I think it's the only way to make the world go around. Yeah, you know now, what, if, I, if it's, Christine? I was saying the same thing on Thanksgiving Day about interacting with relatives around the Thanksgiving table. The solution is not to shun them. Uh, I think it's to engage. To your point, so I think you might have convinced me here. Cancel culture makes the world worse, as we are living through now. We don't move forward. Yeah. Hey, great call. Uh, great call, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now. Uh, I had a great weekend. I hope you did as well. We went to uh, my mother-in-law's for Thanksgiving. Uh, we did the show. I, I did the show Thursday morning, and then I stuck around for another two hours. I did the uh, WABC early news from 5 to 6, and then I did the first hour of the morning show with John Katsimatidis and Dominic Carter. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and then we went to uh, my mother-in-law's out in Long Island. We hit very little traffic out there. I got to sleep. You know, I was trying to sleep on the way, but here's what happened. I'll be, I'm being honest, and this is not meant to sound conceited, but my wife, while I was sleeping, she put on the podcast of our show in the car. Now, I find the podcast, even though I know what's going to happen, I find the podcasts of these shows so incredibly compelling. I can't sleep. Now, obviously... I I think the topics are compelling themselves because I'm the one that's picking them. But also then, you know, to hear you kind of critique yourself. So I didn't really sleep much on the way. I did get a nap at my mother-in-law's and then my wife and I spent the night there because um, we, um, you know, we we wanted our son to spend some time with his grandmother and so forth. A couple of interesting things. One, we slept on a guest bed. Right. Or I don't know whose bed my wife has eight siblings. So there's so many bedrooms in there. And uh, I don't know who sleeps where. Some people had bunk beds. Now, not only a few of them are still at home. So I think we slept in what's currently a guest bedroom. And interestingly enough. There was no top sheet. 
The previous night, my sister-in-law, Deborah, and her husband had slept there. And I text Deborah when we get into bed. I said, did you have a top sheet last night? Because I thought, okay, maybe they did the laundry and changed the sheets. And that's why we're, you know, we have no top sheet. Deborah said, no, we never had a top sheet growing up. I said, whoa, hold the phone. I said, honey, is this true? Did you and all of your siblings grow up without a top sheet on your bed? My wife tells me yes. I said, when was the first time you used a top sheet? She said, when I went away to college. And I have to tell you, I had no idea that my wife experienced and her siblings experienced this kind of trauma. And I always try to be understanding uh, whenever my wife is screaming at me. Mostly I'm understanding because it's almost always my fault. But uh, I said, honey, I wish you would have brought this up with me earlier in our relationship. I had no idea that you didn't grow up with a top sheet. And uh, this explains so much. And uh, she kind of laughed at that. But honestly, I didn't even know that you could buy sheets without a top sheet. I mean, where do you go to buy a sheet for your bed that doesn't even have a top sheet? So anyway, uh, we had a great time at Thanksgiving. Uh, nice meal. Uh, a bunch of pies, even with my biking. It was um, it was far too many pies for me to be trying. I tried the pumpkin. I tried the, I think, uh, some apple. And there was a third pie that I tried as well. All very good. Uh, like a custard, a lemon custard. We brought this pie this uh, that Dr. Galati, who was on this show, ironically talking about obesity, he sent me a pie, a pecan pie, and I brought it to my dad's when we had Thanksgiving there the previous weekend. But we, there were so many desserts. We said, all right, we're not going to put it out. Everyone said, no, we got so many, it's not going to get eaten. So Rachel says, all right, we'll bring it to my mom's for Thanksgiving. We bring it to her house. The pie does not get eaten there. We bring it home because we're thinking, all right, we're going to have Carmine's birthday on Saturday. And uh, we'll serve it there. There were so many desserts there. We did not serve the pecan pie. So now we have brought this pecan pie, which I can't wait to try, quite honestly, to three different parties. And it's not gotten open once. Here's the interesting thing. On the way back, you know, my wife's from Long Island, so eastern Long Island. So she has a lot of friends out there and family and so forth, as you might expect. So she says, do you mind if we pop in and see my friend? I don't want to mention her name because I don't want to embarrass anybody. And this is an old friend of hers. Her children call my wife Aunt Rachel. And her and her husband, both great people. And their kids are just wonderful, wonderful kids. They got a birthday present for Carmine. They're just great. And this, this friend of hers, it's not her name, but let's call her Shirley. This friend of hers and her husband are super cautious about COVID. Even though they had COVID, even though they're vaccinated, they're very cautious. So my wife says to me, before we go there, look, I know you're going to hate this, but they've asked us to wear a mask while we're visiting with them. Fine. I'm a good sport. I'll wear a mask. And uh, I said, Carmine is obviously not going to wear a mask. I can't even get him to wear a hat without him taking it off. He's not going to sit there with a mask on. So, no, Carmine, we're not going to even try to put a mask on. Okay. So we go there. We visit them with them. We have a nice visit. Obviously, there's no eating or drinking because that would involve demasking. 
Uh, and, and again, I can't stress how I'm not being critical of these folks. And in some ways, I feel bad that they're so not just this couple, but everybody that's still so frightened of the virus. And I have a lot of friends that fit this description, but they keep the window open because I guess they want air circulating. <laughs> I'm sitting on the couch and it's freezing. It's freezing. It was I, I don't know what the temperature was on. This was Friday morning. 50 degrees, 51 degrees outside, whatever the temperature was outside, they had us seated right next to a window. And all I could think of is how cold I am. Now, I'm trying to make conversation, trying to talk soccer, the World Cup, how's work, how's so-and-so. And I'm so distracted by how cold it is. And I think I had a jacket on. Um, It was wild, wild. But uh, whatever, you know, it's their house, their rules. We had Carmine's birthday party on Saturday. He turned one. His birthday was on Friday, but we had his birthday on uh, Saturday. And we, um, we, I don't think that anybody wore, wore a mask. And, and again, if people want to wear a mask, that's great. I'm all for respecting whatever people's wishes are. But there were no, there were, we had windows open, but that was because there were, you know, a lot of people. Not a lot of people, but a lot of people for our house. We don't have a big house, so. Um, you know, everybody, it gets warm. So you open the window for, for circulation purposes. I must say, I never thought that I would be so happy to see the Troika of Alex Barnard, Kenneth, um, male model Kenneth, and uh, and uh, Matt Blaze, who were off on Thursday. I Around the 11th minute of dead air uh, in, in the first hour of the show on Thursday, I couldn't believe that I was saying I wish Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and, and Alex were here, but I did find myself wishing that. I must say, if that was all part of your plan, Matt, to make people miss you, then uh, I must say it worked swimmingly. Well, well, well. Yes, yes. So you missed us, huh? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I missed you and was simultaneously <laughs> angry with you for not adequately preparing the people that were here subbing for you. John Katzimatidis calling me in the 10th minute of our dead air, demanding to know why we're not on the air. And I have no explanation. Well, I, I don't know what exactly happened. I know. Yes. The Neither do I. The engineer was here. I know it was more than just a regular something's wrong because I'm not here. It was more than that from what I've been told. Right. No, it was very smart of the three of you, I must say. I used to do this, right? Never take more than a day or two off. Because if you're essential to the running of anything, a workplace, a business, a radio show, a theater production, anything, TV show, things fall apart when you're not there for a day. After the second day, people kind of figure out how to get by without you. Once you're out a third day, forget it. Then it's like, who needs you? But you were very smart to very strategically all take off together at once so that things did fall apart without you. So so well done. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Yes, it was yeah. very good. Okay. Very good. Uh, how was your Thanksgiving, Mr. Alex Barnard? It was delicious, given that it was the first time I had ever cooked a turkey. Oh, you cooked a turkey? Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend, Callie, and I, we did everything. We cooked the entire dinner for uh, my family, and it turned out to be a big smash hit. So what were you at? Your mom's house? No, we were at my grandmother's house. Uh, she lives. She lives on the Upper East Side. Did uh, your girlfriend's family come too? No, they they live in Massachusetts. But we ended up um, it's a big going... step spending Thanksgiving together. 
Well, we ended up we ended up going to their uh, to their place afterwards. We spent the weekend in, in oh, Massachusetts. Oh, so you drove up to Massachusetts? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. nice. That's that's, that's, that's a big step making a turkey. Yeah, yeah, that is a, sure. I would make a come? turkey for a long time. What do you mean? How, what do you mean? How did it come? The turkey. How did it come? I mean, well, how we, did it come out? Oh, it came. It came out great. I mean, we did it. Uh, it's a weird way to ask that question. How did it? Come? He, you talking about a turkey? I say, how did it come? And that's uh, that's well, a we weird did it. Uh, we uh, Callie had this method uh, that I'd never heard of called spatchcocking it, where you like break all of its bones. Family show here. Well, <laughs> you, you you essentially break all the bones in the in the breast and and everything, kind of uh, lay it out flat so it cooks more evenly and quicker. Yeah, I'm calling. It, the, I'm calling the ASPCA. Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, breaking the bones of a turkey. I know a poor defenseless bird. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and what you didn't fry it, right? You just throw it in the oven and yeah, throw oven it in the baked. oven, baste it, and know. it came well. You were happy with it. Yeah, oh, it was delicious. Not meant to be a trick question. Go no, ahead. I know. Okay, <laughs> I, uh, I now I could say this now that Thanksgiving is over. Turkey has got to be the most overrated food in the world. I mean, I agree. You would never uh, Thanksgiving. The modern Thanksgiving meal is basically a, not an Italian Thanksgiving, but it's basically. A collection of foods that you would never go to a restaurant and order. I mean, think about all the times you've ever been to a restaurant. Have you ever said, yes, I'll take a turkey? No. No. Uh, the you turkey. Chicken. Stuffing. Right. Cranberry Green bean sauce. casserole. <laughs> yeah. Turnips. It's a collection of stuff that you would never order. And, Kenneth, you had a good Thanksgiving as well, I take it? Yes, sir. I spent it with my dad. It was very nice. That's nice. That's great. All right. Hey, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Sinatra singing The World We Knew. Uh, this is a great Sinatra song that I don't feel like gets enough attention, but it's uh, really, really terrific. By the way, I was talking about the podcast earlier. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, just search Frank Morano Interviews and More. That's one podcast. That's for highlights of the show and special stuff that you won't hear if you're listening to the network version of the show. And uh, you also want to subscribe, obviously, to The Other Side of Midnight on uh, w- with Frank Morano. Just search that on any podcast app. Hit the subscribe button. You'll get it downloaded to your phone each and every day. And if you want to do us a solid, uh, you can give us a five-star review on iTunes, or as Governor Cuomo would say, on Apple. And uh, it will help more people find the program. If you want to leave a nice comment, well, it's not so bad either. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. I was going to talk about Freddie Roman here who passed away. We'll, we'll, we'll do that a bit later. 800-848-9222. A lot of people eager to chat about this Trump situation, having dinner with Kanye West and Nicholas Fuentes. Let me begin with Simon in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. By the way, I was talking about 
All right. Thank you, Simon. Samuel in Staten Island. Hello, Samuel. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I personally have no problem with um, Trump sitting down with um, Nick Fuentes. I don't think it was smart for him politically because the media looks for headlines, but I'm an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I will sit down with Nick Fuentes, maybe educate him a bit. I think somebody needs to sit down with him because he asked some of the right questions. Just, I don't have any problem with anybody asking questions in Orthodox Jews or Jews. You just have to make sure to get the right answer. Now, if you cancel these people like Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, never going to give them the right answers, yeah. and all you're going to do is solidify their suspicions. You know, uh, Samuel, um, thank you. And I think you and Christine, I think you've changed my mind, right? Uh, 24 hours ago, I was of the opinion Trump should never have dinner with Kanye West. I think you guys have turned me around, honestly. Uh, and I would say the same thing if this was Obama and uh, Jeremiah Wright or Obama and Farrakhan. Um, I think you have, honestly. All right, uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff, including King Arthur. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or turkey spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. on the East Coast. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. Uh, you know, the reason I let that music play a little bit, well, the reason was twofold, to be honest. I uh, was chewing a handful of granola, and um, it's the one thing they have here that I just can't resist. There's this granola, and it's got nuts in it, and it's got raisins, and I was chewing some raisins, and I figured, uh, let me take a swig of coffee so that my teeth don't stick together while I start commenting. But anyway, um, the other reason is I usually have an idea of what I want to comment on at the start of each hour. And the best that I could do is to narrow it down to three. And um, I thought about spinning the wheel. You know, we have a wheel of topics that I occasionally turn to to determine what to uh, comment on. But I didn't have a chance to put these three options before the wheel. So I'm just going to decide. I'm going to go with my first instinct. And it involves me asking you a question. Every 10 years, there's a census that needs to be taken. This census is integral to so many aspects of American life. It's in the Constitution that you have to do a census, right? So this is, they've been doing this since the 18th century. It's been around a while. You get a lot of important information from the census. But the practical implications of the census are even more important. Chief among them, you probably know, is congressional representation. Which states gain seats? Which states lose seats? Federal funding. 
for different things that are based on population. It's dependent on the census. It's responsible for so many different things. Here's a question for you that I want you to answer. And it's one I've been wrestling with, and I've finally come to a determination. If you're in prison, and we have millions of people in prison in this country, if you're in prison, should you be counted where you're incarcerated? Or should you be counted where you're from, where you live when you're not incarcerated, your last address prior to incarceration? What do you think? 800-848-9222. And why? 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you have an opinion? If you're incarcerated, if you're a prisoner, should you be counted for purposes of the census where you lived prior to your incarceration, or should you be counted in the prison that you're at? And why? Being counted at the prison that you're at, you don't really have a choice. You're in prison. So does that, you don't get to, you you can't vote. So congressional representation. Right. You're not allowed to vote. Um, You're not going to be writing to, I guess you can be writing to a congressman if you want to get something changed having to do with the prison system. Yeah, no, you'd be surprised how many letters I get from people in prison. They're doing a lot of writing. They have a lot of time. I'm saying if they wanted but, to right, write to Congress or... They're not active in civic life, is your point. Right. Right. So... But... If, yeah, okay. But at the same time, they are members still of the society in some way. So I guess I would have to say, given those two choices, the third one would be not counted at all, which I don't think is right either. No, you got to count. Right. So I would say you got to be counted at the prison that you're at. Why? Given what you said, that they're not great participants in prison life. Why? Well, because if if they wanted some sort of uh, law changed, that's something. Let's say they're in state prison, and they're in obviously somewhere where they don't live, their their town, but they're in state prison, and they want something changed. Who do they write to? Do they write to to the who represents that area where the prison is, or do they write to the person that represents them in their town? I would say you write to the person that represents where the prison is. Uh, well, that's fair, and I can't argue with that rationale. And I have thought about this question for years because in New York, there was a big push to change this years ago. And New York did change it. Do you know what New York did? New York State? In New York State, the way it was was they counted you the Matt Blaze method. They counted you where you were incarcerated. And you know who loved that? The State Senate, which was controlled by Republicans. Because it allowed them to have more Republican representation. Because the places where these prisons were, the non-prison population of those counties was not exactly robust. They were shedding population, which meant they would be shedding state legislative and congressional representation. And you know who hated it? People in New York City, where a lot of these folks were from. Committing crimes, and they get sent upstate. So... It was changed in New York. And uh, then Assemblyman Hakeem Jeffries, who's now the top Democrat in the House, uh, Assemblyman Michael Benjamin, they led this fight and they changed it in New York. Thirteen states, including New York, now count the incarcerated as residents of their home communities for redistricting purposes and everything else. Four other states, Illinois, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Tennessee, they are taking steps to do this as well. Meaning 
count people in their home counties instead of where they're incarcerated. What do you think? If you're in prison, should you be counted in your home county or should you be counted in your where you're incarcerated? I ultimately have thought about this, and the New York Post editorialized on this on Sunday. I'll tell you what they think. But I have come to think that you should be counted in your home county, not where you're incarcerated. Really, for the reasons that Matt Blaze states, um, if you're sent to a prison, you're not getting to utilize the public parks in that community. You're not getting to vote unless it's a you know federal detention center and you're sent there pre-trial but for the most part you're not getting to vote you're not getting you're not necessarily familiar with the ins and outs of that community and you could be transferred with no consent of your of your own you've had no say in anything there you're essentially a resident depending on the prison you're a resident inside of a box And because that box happens to fall in the state of Pennsylvania, why should you be counted and why should the state of Pennsylvania be rewarded by your count and give that state more federal money and more congressional seats because you happen to end up there as a prisoner? So I've come to think that you should be counted in your home home county, your home state. Curious what you think. This is what the New York Post editorial board said. They agree with me. They think the census should count prisoners as residents of their home communities. In practice, they say, the census rule is a form of gerrymandering, funneling political power and resources away from mostly urban communities to the often rural areas that host prisons. So uh, I, the, the census counts, as the Post points out, Truckers, boarding school patients, uh, boarding school students, military personnel, astronauts, well, not astronauts, others who are away on Census Day as residents of their true homes because the Bureau acknowledges the importance of family and community ties. And the New York Post says, and I agree with them, inmates should get similar recognition. The Census Bureau is now seeking public input on what they should do. For 2030. And they're soliciting input on a wide variety of issues, including this one. And I think they should count the people where they live prior to incarceration, not once they're incarcerated. What do you think? 800-848-9222. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven open lines. 800-848-9222. What if they're in prison for life? And they've been there for 25 years. Yeah, uh, I mean, th- I, I, I hear you, but... Um, I still think they should be counted as a resident of the last known county at the, the county pri- at the time of conviction that was their their residence be- for the same reasons. One, uh, I mean, let's say you serve in a military field of battle for for six or seven years, right? You're not being counted, or you're transferred to another state because you're in the military. Uh, you know, I, I think we still we still count those people where they lived. No matter how many times they're transferred, you can be in the Coast Guard, for instance, and get transferred from Kentucky to Cape May to Long Island to Florida. I think, you know, you still are counted for where your home county was 
prior to that. Same thing, as I said, with boarding school and everything else. You have no say in where you end up. So I I kind of, and I've wrestled with this for literally years, but I do think this is causing a flood of representation and funding from urban areas to rural areas. I mean, these people, as you said, they're not participating in civic life. They may be writing to their congressman, but unless it's an issue of air quality or water quality, I mean, what these people aren't sending their children to school where they're going to prison. If they have children, and many of them do, those children are in school where they live, in their home county. So that's where, for the purposes of school seats, for the purposes of representation, that's where I think they should be counted. I agree with the uh, New York Post on this. Rich is in the Bronx. What do you think, Rich? Hello? Rich, what do you think? I think that prisoners who go to prison, they're forcing society to create these communities known as prisons, and they're recurring. So therefore, I think the prisoners, they are suspended from voting. They are suspended from civic duties. I think they should just be counted in the prison for that reason. Unlike the military, where people are serving their country or people who are doing a job overseas, these prisoners are collectively forcing society to create prisons. Society isn't forced to create prisons. Well, what about places where they let prisoners vote, like Washington, D.C., for instance? I disagree with that. Well, no, no, I know you disagree with it, but they have chosen that this is what they want to do. So uh, in Washington, D.C., should they be counted uh, differently there than in the other states? Well, Washington, D.C. is too small of an area. They would be voting uh, the same way as if they live there or not. But it, let's say if it's Washington State, for example, I think they can vote there. I still think they should vote where the prison is. They're the ones who forced the prison's existence. All right. Well, thank you, Rich. 800-848-9222. Robert in Suffolk, what do you think? Being you're temporarily there, it's a problem because you can be in and out within the census time of 10 years. Right. That's the other thing. It's such a great point that you bring up, and it's one that I I wish I had mentioned. You're exactly right. And we know about 95 to 98 percent of people that are in state or federal prison, they get out. So you're exactly right. If you happen to reside in a prison in the state of Pennsylvania in the year 2020 and you're moving back to Michigan in the year, you know, when you get out, which is the year 2024, why should the state of Pennsylvania get to count you and potentially get an extra congressional seat? Yes, that's true. You can move elsewhere out after your term. Yeah, that's a great point, Robert. So it is problematic. And I also think it's probably partisan, too. Look who changed the law in New York State, the Democrats. Right. Well, and the Republicans fought it. I get that. The population incarcerated is a minuscule portion of the total population. So it's not going to make that much of a difference. Well, I don't know. You'd be surprised for some New York we barely lost a congressional seat. Had we gotten, I forget what the number was, but it was something like another forty or 50,000 people counted in New York, we would have gotten to save a congressional seat. Uh, so 
in some cases, it does make a, a big difference. How many people in the United States do you think are incarcerated? Um, I believe it's 2% of the total population. No, in, ter- in terms of raw numbers, how many, how well, many people then, do you think are incarcerated currently in the United States? All right. Well, it, let's say it is 2% which might be a good number, uh, that would mean it's, uh, let's see, two, two, over 6 million, 7 no, million? No, it's not that many. It's, it's, uh, it's about 2.2 million people, right, that are, that are in federal, mm-hmm. state, prisons, or jails. That's a lot of people. Okay. 2 million people, uh, that could tip the scale of several congressional um, series, seats and so forth. 800-848-9222. Johnny in Garden City, what's on your mind? Uh, this is more on the Trump topic. Uh, I just want to say something, Frank. I come from a business background, family-owned company for 50, 55, 60 years. Trump is the type of person that what he does, he's always looking for consensus of ideas. That's how he keeps his game going. He's looking at different ideas of different people. He's also a type of guy who breaks balls as well, too. So this whole thing with Kanye West is really to create controversy. I don't think you realize who Kanye West's friend was. And the media kind of jumped on it. But that's what Trump is all about. He's more of a guy. He's always looking to see ideas to get a consensus for himself, his thinking, for winning, for losing, and so forth. So that's the thinking he has, his mindset. That's how he operates. So, so people don't understand that, that mindset because they look at the political point of view. All right, so y- your view is view. you have no problem with it? No, I have no problem. All right. All right. Thank you, Johnny. All right, 800-848-9222. So Robert in Suffolk thinks, count them where they live. They're housed in these prisons temporarily. Now, maybe temporarily is eight years, but mostly it's it's less than that. And they have no control over where they go. Why should they be counted where they happen to be incarcerated? A lot of them aren't getting outside much anyway. The A prison in uh, North Carolina might look the same as a prison in Maine. Rich in the Bronx disagrees. He thinks, look, these people did something to go to prison. And why should their home communities be rewarded with increased representation and increased funding? I get both arguments. But this is something that the Census Bureau has got to figure out in advance of the 2030 census. So if you were advising them, what would you say? I'm thinking of writing them a letter and echoing many of the same points that are made in this New York Post Editorial. Tell me where you come down on it. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited. We are going to talk with Dr. Jonathan Young about King Arthur. We all know King Arthur, right? I mean, he's been memorialized probably more in cinema and literature than almost any character in history. And uh, including in this great film, The Sword in the Stone. It's no use, boy. They've all gone to the tournament. Oh, what'll I do? Kay's got to have a sword. Well, look, boy, look. They're in the churchyard. A sword. Oh, Archimedes, a sword. Uh, that was the, sword, the uh, sword in the Stone, which obviously is, you know, a children's movie, takes a, a very different view than the traditional Camelot myth. Uh, there was one Camelot film that I really enjoyed. Um, obviously, I enjoyed the musical a great deal, I believe, with Richard Burton, but... The film with uh, Richard Gere, I think it was Lancelot, that was quite good. That was more of a love story. But um, what if King Arthur was real? I'm not saying he is, but there is some scholarship to suggest 
that there might be some truth behind the myth of King Arthur. We're going to get into it with uh, Dr. Jonathan Young in uh, just a moment. Uh, But I am curious as to your take on where prisoners should be counted in the census. You know, the last time they had a similar debate about this, it was about slavery. And you know the Great Compromise. They decided they would count three-fifths of slaves. The slave states wanted the slaves counted as, you know, people, one, one, one person for one. The states in the north said, no, no, no. These people have no rights. They don't vote. They don't have a chance to leave. They don't have any say in whether they're there or not. Why should you be able to count these people and get more power in Congress by counting them as people when they have none of the rights of people? So the compromise they ironed out was they counted three-fifths of the slaves as people. They call that the three-fifths compromise. But uh, I don't know if that's maybe the kind of thing that uh, they can look at here. I kind of just think they should be counted where they're from. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Dave is in Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. How's it going? How was your Thanksgiving? Great. Thank you, Dave. I hope yours was, too. I was uh, fine. Thank you. Uh, I just want to make a point other than what your main topic is. We as a country, the United States of America, imprison more people in prisons and jails than any other country in the world. It's, uh, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's really something that uh, I think it's the uh, law enforcement is a big business now. Uh, you've got uh, police officers, uh, chiefs of police in some of these little towns in New Jersey, Bergen County making two hundred thousand dollars a year. You got officers making hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. You get to retire after twenty five years. You've made three four million dollars. It's uh, it's a big business. It's a big business, and then you got the prosecutors and uh, everybody that's involved in. You know, basically, there are so many wrongly convicted people also in jail. Oh, well, I, Dave, that's for sure. We talk about that a great deal. Dave, it's a great point, and I've covered this a lot, and thank you for the call. Uh, Jim Webb, when he was in the Senate, and that's the guy that I really wish was president today. I love Jim Webb. I, I When he was running, I contributed to him. I thought he was a great senator and a great secretary of the Navy and uh, just a great guy. But... I've been trying to get him on the show. I don't know where he's been hiding. He's kind of kept a low profile since leaving the Senate. But anyway, he said uh, on this subject about 15 years ago, he said the the United States, to your point, Dave, has more people in prison than any other country in the world. Now, that leaves two possibilities. Either Americans happen to be more wicked than people anywhere else in the world or something's really wrong. And a lot of people recognize that something was really wrong. And I really have to give credit. I don't want to make the show too political here. But I have to give credit to President Trump and the bipartisan coalition that advocated for the First Step Act. People like Trump and Jared Kushner and Van Jones and Bernard Carrick and Cory Booker and the Koch brothers. And they're the ones that got this First Step Act passed. And a whole bunch of people have been freed because of that Trump effort on uh, – a Trump bipartisan effort on criminal justice reform. I think that was a tremendous step in the right direction. 
The uh, bottom line, though, and again, my hope was to keep this about the census, but um, on the subject of criminal justice, the bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, is there are far too many people in prison who shouldn't be there, and there are far too many people not in prison who should be there. And it's finding out which one's which. That is the challenge. But I think that's the that's the gist of uh, what I think the fundamental problem is with the criminal justice system today. All right. Uh, very excited to talk with Dr. Jonathan Young in just a moment. You're going to really enjoy our discussion, I think. At least I hope you will. I've been wrong before, though. <laughs> we'll talk about King Arthur and uh, a whole bunch of other a whole bunch of other things. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the Thompson Twins, King for a Day. I'll tell you, one of the people that I find so impressive is Dr. Jonathan Young. He is all over the History Channel on great sto- uh, great shows like uh, The Unexplained with William Shatner, uh, com- regular commentator on Ancient Aliens. We, he's also a consulting producer. He's a scholar. He's the founding curator of the Joseph Campbell Archives, where he collaborated with a fellow you might have heard of named George Lucas. He is a psychologist. He is a professor. He's a terrific writer where he has uh, focused a great deal on medieval lore. His website, where you can get lost, there's so many different interesting things to read, is called folkstory.com. So thrilled to have Dr. Jonathan Young join us. Dr. Young, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Frank. So, uh, Dr. Young, obviously uh, you're a very studied psychologist. How did you come to be the uh, curator of the Joseph Campbell archives? Maybe you could start with telling folks who Joseph Campbell was. All right. Joseph Campbell was the world's leading uh, comparative mythologist. He's well known at Sarah Lawrence College in uh, New York City area. And uh, he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces that was a bestseller a number of times, and then did a public television interview series with Bill Moyers that was the biggest thing ever in public TV. So he's a well-known scholar, and that's an unusual thing. Uh, scholars don't tend to become well-known. Well, no, that's a great point. 
You let me tap into your expertise as both a psychologist and a medieval myth historian. There are so many myths uh, from the ancient world all the way up to the present day that shape so much of the society. Metaphors uh, that are used, superstitions, uh, religious traditions, even the language that we use. Uh, Obviously, you have Greek mythology, Roman mythology. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about King Arthur. In your view, uh, what is it about human and the human brain that makes us crave mythology and to mythologize certain happenings or entities. These stories give us the basic outline of human experience. They are wisdom literature. They are guidebooks, roadmaps to life. That's why they survived so long. And the basic patterns of these mythic narratives show up in different cultures at different times. We have contemporary myth. That is, this vision is what structures society and structures the human mind so that we know what to do as human beings. That's why they last. One of the great lines in a piece that you wrote for Folkstory.com, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Moranofan, is that reading ancient tales is a form of time travel. Do you find that a lot of ancient myths, whether we're talking Greek, Roman, Norse, British, a lot of these stories still hold up today? They do hold up. We retell them in movies. I heard in your warm-up you were mentioning a movie called First Night with David Gere and uh, Richard Gere. Oh, First Night. That's a, right. a terrific retelling. And that's what we do is we retell these stories over and over. They, they were the bedtime stories at one time in our lives. They are in our media. They're in our dreams. These are the stories we are living by. The first night is essentially a story of succession. That is, one generation coming in, another generation has to move aside. Now, that happens in every family. That happens in other great movies like The Godfather. We are dealing with the big issues of life in mythological stories, so we go back to them again and again. So often it seems like a lot of these mythological tales have a hero, whether it's a hero like uh, like Hercules or uh, some similar type of person that uh, defies all the odds, sometimes with superhuman abilities, sometimes not. Why do we seek out these hero myths? We are the heroes of our own stories. If we think about our life story as a great movie, This is our job, is to rise to the occasion, to find our own strength, our own intelligence, our own creativity, and get through the big challenges and succeed, uh, make some kind of a contribution with our life energy. We need courage. We need our own heroic impulse. So it's useful to reflect on the stories that have been left for us by those who went before. What is the difference, if any, between mythology and religion? Oh, Joseph Campbell would say that mythology is other people's religion. That is, it's, it's religion without the, the um, uh, gods, although the gods are in the story. There are also stories without any gods that are basically human beings dealing with the big challenges of life. Sometimes we get the help of the gods. There, there, there's really a very religious element to it, mm. uh, but it, that's not the crucial element in the story. All right. Um, I'm alluded to King Arthur. King Arthur has been depicted not only in literature and on the stage in so many different versions. He's been depicted in dramas, children's films, and yes, even in slapstick comedy. Old woman, man, ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. 
Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. <laughs> That's, of course, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The, st- the story of King Arthur is such an interesting one. He was a Celtic Briton who, according to medieval histories, was the leader of the British and uh, helped them fend off invaders. And he became king largely by pulling out the sword of Excalibur. Where did the story of King Arthur come from? Well, it is a traditional story. That is, a poor child uh, is born in mysterious circumstances. He's raised by a foster family. He has a wise mentor. We call him Merlin. He pulls a sword from a stone, which is to say anybody could have pulled that sword out, but he is a selected special character. We need, we all need to see our own story as, as somehow special, that we are called to do something. We'll have a chance to rise to the occasion. That thing about the sword is very interesting because others had tried to pull that out, but they, it, was, it was not possible for them. Even the greatest strong muscle builders, you know, bodybuilders would come there with all their muscles and they couldn't get it out. He came along and pulled it out easily. That suggests that the thing we're supposed to do might come very easily to us, be very very difficult for someone else. We should not take lightly that which we can already do. The segment of uh, The Unexplained that I uh, saw you on, and you did a great job kind of framing the story, was about the, the, they called it the untold true story of King Arthur. And there's some folks that say that there might be a kernel of truth in this mythology. What does your research suggest about that possibility? There are the stories, and the stories are actually older than the historical warrior. There was a historical figure, uh, probably trained by the Britons, who did some important things at a certain time and became a king, although that was not for the entire islands of the United Kingdom. It was for a certain area. So, yeah, we do base a legend of partly fact, partly fiction. The fiction is the more important part. We, we can trace back the details of the time. But in the fiction, we get the ideals. We get the, the grand sweep of things. A lot of details are added to make him larger than life. So I'm interested in both the fact and the fiction. But, yeah, there are some actual historical details that we can trace to a warrior who is probably the source material for the King Arthur story. And obviously, I'm assuming that a warrior was not surrounded by a wizard named Merlin that aged um, in, in reverse. Backwards, yeah. What, what but, do we know about the real-life basis for that warrior? Well, uh, Ambriosus was this fellow that was trained by the uh, the Romans in, in all likelihood, and it was about the time the Romans were leaving, so there was a, a political vacuum, and somebody needed to take charge of things, or there would have been chaos. And there is also some historical background to the Merlin figure. This was a wise bard who was said to be able to do magic, probably lived in the woods, as wise figures sometimes do in these stories, and might have been an advisor to great leaders, uh, probably not to the uh, warrior that the King Arthur character is based on. These two stories were kind of spliced together. But we do have some historical figures that uh, are probably the source of the stories. Now, the idea of a wise mentor, every great leader needs guides, probably older figures that maybe they're even parent-like. They're not parents. Parents are not 
mentors. That's a, a slightly different role. A mentor can show you things that you need to know that seem impossible, but that's the nature of learning. It's not possible until we learn how to do it. So we all need to be a King Arthur or at least kind of a royal elegance in our own life. We need to take charge like Arthur did, and we need to find the advice we will require to pull off the task. Is it possible to pinpoint the initial author of Arthur? Do we know who came up with the idea of writing down these tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and so forth? Well, these stories are circulating. They're in the oral tradition first, so they don't really belong to the person that writes them down. But Chrétien de Troyes is a French writer that wrote it. uh, A lot of these stories were written on the continent before they were well-known in Britain. And some of them were well-known in Ireland before they were, you know, over on the main island of the what is now the United Kingdom. So we do have certain historical writers that can be credited. Uh, probably the idea of a of a divine court, uh, a round table, uh, um, a Camelot that is an unusually a brilliant creation in terms of government, that came along a little later in the evolution of the story. What we first of all have is good character, someone who's able to take charge, who is decisive, who has discernment. That's that's the sword. A sword can cut finely, so it, it is our ability to make good choices. Careful decisions are very important as we live our lives and make whatever contribution we're going to make. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Young. You can check out his website, folkstory.com. There's some great stuff on there. While I have you, uh, Dr. Young, let me also ask you about the Holy Grail. Uh, Obviously, the Holy Grail, if it's possible, has uh, an equal or greater place in worldwide myth than than King Arthur does. Uh, This is supposedly the cup that Jesus drank from, and uh, anybody that's seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade knows that if you drink from it, you have eternal life or close to it, all sorts of good stuff. Um, What do we know about the reality of the Holy Grail? The Holy Grail is a symbol from before Christianity. It's, it's very feminine. It's almost womb-like. So it was sometimes depicted as a, as a bowl or a chalice. It's a cup of some kind that would hold a special liquid that provides amazing powers. So it is a symbol for the sacred, or in, in more common language, it's the meaning of life. And if we can get close to the meaning of life, of life and drink from it, then our our powers are multiplied. We're in touch with the sacred, and well, we'll live forever, or feel like we'll live forever. We all seek something. Most people want to know meaning or have a sense of fulfillment in life. So everybody is on the search for the Holy Grail in that sense, and it's in many stories before it's found in the Camelot story. And this central figure then is a way of focusing the whole idea in life of searching for something. What what do we desire? If you look at a good novel or a good movie, you need to know who the central, what the central character wants. What do you want? What do you want in life? Well, we all want the Holy Grail, and it means a little something different to each person. Some people want love. Some people want action. Uh, some people want money. A lot of people want a sense of belonging, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of, of, of well, realization in life. And that's, that's what that symbol's all about. If you were to go looking for the Holy Grail today, where would you start? 
Well, you could look for the actual grail. If there was some kind of a goblet or, or chalice, uh, they say it's in Glastonbury. There's a hill where some people think it's buried. I've been. I've looked at the hill. Um, I don't think it's in there, but there's another place up in Scotland called Rosslyn Chapel that was involved with the Knights Templars and all that. And they say it was buried. Well, in the Da Vinci Code, there was something about it being buried in the cellar. I went down to the cellar. Um, it looks like regular stone flooring to me. I, I, so people get thinking, get to thinking about the Grail as an actual thing that, that could be located. I think that's kind of missing the point. It's so it's a symbol. Mm-hmm. It's an image that represents something. And we, where we can find it is in our hearts. We can find it by studying what the, the unusual story we find ourselves living is all about what kind of story is this person living? What kind of story is calling them to some sort of purpose in life? There's the Holy Grail. You um, have you mentioned first night, we talked about uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you had to pick your favorite cinematic depiction of King Arthur, what would it be? An older movie called Excalibur that was uh, had a terrific Merlin in it and who was sort of crazy part of the time because wisdom will drive us crazy sometimes and absolutely stunning cinematography it was John Borman who was a wonderful filmmaker and it was focusing on the sword and the sword is a, a crucial element in the story it comes out of a stone well sometimes it's a tree sometimes it's an anvil it varies a little bit it's hard to get a hold of it's a magical sacred thing it is our effectiveness in life it's our ability to win some wars to go out there and, and take on life's battle and accomplish something uh, love it. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Young, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you'll come back soon. Uh, there's no shortage of subjects that we can discuss in the future. Great to be here. Good thank, luck to you. Thank you. Please, we'll need it. That's uh, Dr. Jonathan Young. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, the world is a little less funny. Uh, By now, you have probably heard the news that um, beloved Borscht Belt comic and actor Freddie Roman, probably best known for his roasts as part of the Friars Club and later Comedy Central, 
has passed away at the age of 85 over the weekend. His daughter, Danielle, uh, has confirmed that he suffered a heart attack at his home in Florida. Freddie Roman was one of my favorites. I'd been trying to get him on the show for really the last two years, but I don't think he was uh, in the best of health the last couple of years. Or, you know, maybe he just didn't want to be bothered or didn't know who I was or didn't want to stay up late. Any of those are possible. But he spent most of his life in show business after he was given the opportunity to emcee at his uncle and his grandfather's hotel in the Catskills. You know how old he was? Fifteen. So he has essentially been a public performer, a public personality and an entertainer for 70 years. As you might imagine, Freddie Roman was not his real name. His uh, given name was Fred Kirschenbaum. But back in the day, that's what you did. You changed your name to make it a little less ethnic. And I am such a sucker for his humor. He told these old-timey, corny jokes. He was a fixture at all sorts of comedy clubs in both New York and Vegas. He was the dean or the president of the Friars Club. My buddy Arthur Idala has that job now. And at these roasts, if you watch him on the YouTube, he would take shots at everybody, and he was just brilliant. He was a brilliant man. And it's funny, I don't know how he was able to pull this off, but he was able to take shots at everybody, but still come across as likable, including by the people that he was mocking. For instance, 31 years ago, when he was at the ripe old age of only 54 at the time, he was the MC or the roast master of a roast for a radio talk legend by the name of Bob Grant. Here he is uh, at that Bob Grant roast. I am delighted to be the roast master tonight for Bob Grant. Very proudly in my 30 years of show business, I've been at the Friars Roasts for many great stars. Jerry Lewis, George Burns, Tom Jones, Chevy Chase, next Friday for Richard Pryor. Tonight does not excite me. And if you want, I wa- I ended up watching his whole shtick today um, just because I was feeling nostalgic for Freddie Roman. He takes shots at everybody and everything, different ethnic groups, including his own, and uh, Donald Trump, who was just a casino magnet at the time, uh, Bob Grant, obviously, uh, Mark Simone. It's funny how many of these names stay the same even after 30 years. It's great. It's worth watching. In fact, I'm going to link to it. On my um, on my Facebook page, you can check it out at uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. So I was a fan of uh, Freddie Roman, and I'm sorry that he's uh, I'm sorry that he's gone, but a life well lived and somebody that genuinely seems to have been liked by most of the people that he worked with over the years. Here's a, a little bit more Freddie Roman material. Couple married 47 years. The lady becomes ill. She passes away. Funeral service is over. The pallbearers lift up the coffin, start to walk out. The coffin hits the wall. From inside the coffin, you hear, oh, my God. A miracle. The lady lived. She lived another three years. 
got sick again, died again. Another funeral. Service is over. The pallbearers lift up the coffin, start to walk out. The husband yells, watch out for the wall. (laughs) Uh, That is outstanding. I'll play you one last one because... What you know, one of the greatest things to ever happen to the world of comedy, especially Borscht Belt comedy, is Viagra because it opens up a whole new world of humor and jokes. And I'll tell you, I know a lot of uh, fellas are happy about Viagra for what it's done to their libido. If it's possible to stimulate your comedic routine, comics like Freddie, Freddie Roman, and that Borscht Belt cadre of comics, they certainly benefited. Most of the drug commercials on television center around one subject, increasing a man's sexual prowess. It started with Viagra, which is a great drug. I take one every night. It keeps me from rolling out of bed at night. But the last drug in that series is the best of all. Cialis. Have you seen their commercials? I do not make a word of this. Cialis can help a man work for up to 36 hours. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, at my age, I'm looking for a snappy 20 minutes. 800-848-9222. God bless you, Freddie Roman. There will never be another. And with Freddie's passing... You know, he was one of the last of that whole generation of uh, of Borscht Belt comics, and I'm sorry to see him go. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Thank you. <laughs> that Freddie joke, that Freddie uh, Roman joke about the the woman who died. Yeah. I collected as a folklorist a version of that from a cowboy in New Mexico 45 years ago. Yeah, I think uh, Freddie Roman's uh, comedic material, some of it actually predates King Arthur and the Knights at the Round Table. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be surprised if that joke goes back to, um, what's his name, the guy that wrote um, Gargantua, uh, the, 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 the famous French, uh, French writer. Uh, but I wanted to mention something about King Arthur. Uh, many years ago, I took a wonderful tour with Marion Zimmer Bradley, the author of the great novel Mists of Avalon. You should read that if you've never read it, because it's a classic Arthurian novel, which looks at Arthur from the point of view of six women in his life, including Guinevere, the live, uh, Morgan Le Fay. It's, it's just marvelous. It's a big, it's a long book. Uh, you can't read it in one night. But I wanted to mention a couple of quick things. Arthur is a hero to many groups. He's a hero to the Welsh. He's mentioned in their epic, the Mabinogion. He's a hero to the people of Cornwall, which is a Celtic uh, uh, place in southwestern Britain, if you've traveled in Britain, as I have many, many times. He's a hero in Brittany in northwestern France. He's mentioned in Geoffrey of Monmouth's 1236 History of the Kings of Britain, uh, the only other, the only other king that's mentioned that is only mentioned in Shakespeare is King Lear. The last point I want to bring up is the Holy Grail. <clears throat> the Holy Grail is, as Jonathan Young says, a symbol of purity and perfection. Why do I say this? Because if you remember, when the Knights of the Round Table were established, they were established 
around the table with 150 seats. Only 149 of them were filled. There was one seat called the Siege Perilous, which no one could uh, sit in except for the most perfect knight in the world, who, as it would be, would not be Gal- would not be Lancelot, would not be Gawain, would be Lancelot's son Galahad, and he was the one, along with Percival, who could see the Holy Grail, and Galahad was the one who would eventually see and touch the Holy Grail because he was the most perfect knight in Christendom. Oh, that's I got uh, quite an education in the last minute here, Robert. That's very good, very thorough. But uh, I hope you'll have Jonathan Young back again. He's absolutely fascinating. You could have spent three hours oh, easily, about Joseph easily. Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, which, by the way, I actually used as a required text in one of the high school courses I taught on comparative global hmm. uh, world folklore. One quick last thing about legends and myths. We are so entranced in mythology that even, for example, the world of contemporary urban legends, there is a fascinating program on the Travel Channel, if you have cable, Friday nights called Urban Legends. Now, I will say that they zero in on some of the more ghoulish ones like the old, like like the Harvest, the the Stolen Kidney, the Choking Doberman, the Stolen, uh, not the Stolen, the White Prom Dress that poisons everywhere or with embalming. I mean, it's a, but it's a wonderful show, Frank, if you ever want to see. Yeah, really give me the name what, one more time. Okay, it's called Urban Legends mm-hmm. on the Travel Channel. Yeah, I actually think I have seen it, but I will uh, I will check it out. You really oh. should look, and I think you'd find it interesting. And well, again, I really do hope you'll have Jonathan Young absolutely back again. I could, spend an, I could spend three days talking to him. Uh, uh, thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. We definitely will have him back. I, I got a big kick out of that. Hey, uh, big news, by the way. My son, Carmine, all of a year old, now completely off baby formula. That's right. This guy is a whole milk guy now. No more baby formula for him. Shortages, that's for the rest of you guys. Hey, uh, we got commendations coming up in a moment. We'll also continue with your calls. And uh, if you want to be heard, 800-848-9222. No more guests, so plenty of opportunity for you and I to chat. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. All right, we're going to do commendations in just a moment. But uh, before we get there, if there's one lesson that I have learned over the last year and two days, it has, well, I guess maybe even over the course of a lifetime, it's not to keep people named Carmine waiting. So let me take a quick call from Carmine in New Rochelle. Hello, Carmine. Hello, Frank. Good evening. Frank, if I may, I was going to say something quick about when I met uh, Freddie Roman. Sure, be my guest. I I would like you, if you haven't seen it, watch the movie that the doctor mentioned 
Excalibur. Yeah, it's I haven't seen it. I put it on my list. It sounds great. Frank, it's unbelievable. So I'd like the best kept secret as far as movies. Uh, yeah, no, I, I look. It's, it looks terrific. I can't wait to check it out. Yes, good. Good for you. Uh, I was managing a restaurant in White Plains, and many, many famous celebrities came in. And one night, Freddie Roman walked in with someone named Dick Capri. Sure, I know Dick Capri. Dick Capri's still around. I've seen Dick Capri perform. Really? Oh, if you ever mention the place called Gregory's, he was very friendly with the owner. Everybody loved these two guys. Well, they came in to have dinner, and they were having dinner, and somebody went over to the table, which we never allow. We don't care if they go over when they're having coffee and dessert, but this guy was kind of bold. So he went over, and I loved the way Freddie Roman handled it. He told him, you know, we're eating. When we're finished, I'll tell a joke. So they finished their dinner. They're on their coffee. And Freddie Roman starts to tell a joke, and everybody starts to laugh, the surrounding tables. Then Dick Capri told the joke. Same response. Frank, to this day, I have never seen such comedy, such professionalism, and the laughter in the restaurant. I can't put it into words. They were killing people with these like old-time stories that were so funny and delivered so professionally. I wish we had more of that today. That's great. I, lo- I love hearing that. Uh, that's great. Carmine, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, Frank. All right, take care. Uh, I'm not the least bit surprised. I, I, too, wish we had more of that today. And, you know, that's the thing. And I think uh, Carmine touched upon it when that's what makes Freddie Roman's passing so sad is that it's not just a human being that's no longer living. That's sad. But it's an era that is now over. Now, again, Dick Capri is, is still around, so not literally not every person from that era is gone, but Freddie Roman represented a part of that era. He was maybe the most prominent person in that era. And and his passing, in a lot of ways, represents the end. All right. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm trying to see, whenever I see a tweet that's more than one or two sentences, I have to read pretty carefully to see if it's something that's nice or not nice. Let me read you this tweet from a gentleman named Pierre. Listening to you on WABC is analogous to listening to Mozart, Clark... Chopin, Beethoven music, etc. Your topics are well-balanced and informative. You and your guests are educated, including uh, Joy Damiani. Ignore the relentless verbal assault from those with arrested development. Well, okay. Um, That's nice. Appreciate that, Pierre. All right, without further ado, let us give a pat on the back to those that deserve one. The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. Uh, Let me first begin by giving a commendation to everybody who hosted Thanksgiving dinner. Um, I know how how much work goes into hosting, you know, hosting a party of any sort, but especially Thanksgiving. You have to deal, even if you're hosting a small crowd, although I know a bunch of you 
hosted large crowds. You have to deal with so many different um, cuisine requests. And these days, it's gotten more difficult than ever to do that because this one doesn't eat meat, this one doesn't eat gluten, this one doesn't eat fish. So it really does, um, you know, it really is a challenge. And a lot of times, uh, people who come to visit your house, they don't even bring anything. Maybe they don't even chip in in terms of doing some uh, some work. You know, the least you, I try to at least do something, at least take out the garbage or something at the very least, carry some stuff. But uh, I probably could do more. And I think the same could be said of many uh, Thanksgiving guests in many different folks. So whether you hosted two people, three people, 20 people, or, um, you know, a greater number, uh, know that in my book, you are deserving of a commendation. And even if your guest didn't say thank you enough, I'm saying thank you uh, because I think what you do is so important. Now, there's a lot of people, and I heard from some of them over the last few days, that didn't do anything for Thanksgiving. They had nowhere to go. And I think that's a shame. And I, I think by you opening your home and putting in the work necessary into hosting these people, I really can't overstate the value that I think that has for society. This is a posthumous commendation, and this is really just so t- so sad. But this is a posthumous commendation for a 14-year-old boy who has passed away. This is a real hero. This is a story of heroism and tragedy. Dylan Wittenberg um, became trapped under the icy water of Crystal Lake in Colorado while trying to rescue three other children. Neighbors managed to help the three other kids get pulled ashore, but the dive team had to recover Dylan. And... um, According to Dylan's classmates, the people that knew him, this was very much in keeping with his whole personality. He was selfless. He had a smile that could light up a room. And his aunt, Dylan Wittenberg's aunt, said she wants her nephew to be remembered as a hero. And I hope he is. And I am happy to give him a posthumous commendation because he, well, I wish it were something I could give him while he was still alive. But uh, he is absolutely a hero as far as I'm concerned. And uh, such a shame that uh, someone so young and so kind-hearted is no longer with us. I want to give a commendation to Andy Hackett. <laughs> Andy Hackett. You know, they should send, next time there's a shark on the loose or a, like a Jaws-style shark, they should send this guy out to find him. Andy Hackett is a fisherman in the United Kingdom. And he became the envy of anglers everywhere after reeling in a nearly 70-pound monster goldfish. They think this is the world's largest. Picture this. And if you have Google, you don't have to picture it. Just Google Andy Hackett, and um, you'll see the picture of him and this goldfish. It's, it's, it looks like it's fake. The, picture a giant goldfish. You know like a goldfish that swims in the little fish tank? Picture it being 70 pounds. This guy caught it. Uh, And you could see it on Facebook as well. This fish is nicknamed the carrot. And he caught him while uh, fishing in Champagne, France. 
one of the world's premier carp fisheries. And this is kind of a legendary fish. And he said, I always knew the carrot was in there, but never thought I would catch it. He, um, so it, I guess it's not a goldfish per se. It looks exactly like a goldfish, but it's a Fanta-colored freak of nature. They say it's actually a hybrid species of leather carp and koi carp. This particular specimen, which reportedly is 20 years old, was evidently introduced to the lakes 15 years ago as something different for the anglers to try to catch. So they they put them in there intentionally. Since then, it has grown and grown, and it doesn't come out often. It's almost like the Loch Ness Monster seeing this carrot. She's very elusive. And the carrot had largely, largely eluded capture until Andy Hackett. I knew it was a big fish when it took my bait and went off side to side and up and down with it. Then it came to the surface 30 or 40 yards out, and I saw that it was orange. It was brilliant to catch it, but it was also sheer luck. This guy, Andy Hackett, spent 25 minutes trying to reel in this fish. If you're spending 25 minutes trying to reel in a fish, that's not luck. It takes a lot of hard work. So, uh, by the way, they did set this fish free. So if you're ever in that area, you can go ahead and try and find the carrot yourself. I want to give a commendation to the municipality of Pereban, Michoacan, in Mexico. A new Guinness World Record has been set for the largest serving of guacamole. A large group of men and women made a batch of this avocado-based dip that weighed in at almost five tons. 4,970 kilograms. The largest serving of guacamole ever. I wonder how it tastes. You know what? I am a guacamole fiend. You know, we had Mexican food recently with some friends, and I we we ordered two guacamoles. I like a nice spicy guacamole. The spicier, the better. There's this Mexican restaurant I go to in Atlantic City. It's a taco and tequila bar. And the, the only reason I go there is because they make the guacamole table side, and they make it to your tastes. They say, do you want, you want it hot? Yes, throw pepper in there, everything hot. Do you want crab in there? Crab and guacamole? You could do that? Yes, throw it in. Uh, So we ordered this guacamole recently. We were eating with some friends. And I ordered this super, they call it a five-alarm guacamole. I I eat almost the whole thing. And then I start working on the the other guacamole. And my friend said to me, boy, you really like guacamole. But the, the guacamole that I have really enjoyed over the years, it tends to be... You know, made to order, like that restaurant that I was describing in Atlantic City. That's why I really wonder how it tastes if they're making it en masse like that. I, I kind of think it's probably one of those things that's more of a novelty item and not necessarily great tasting. But I, who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. But it's a, a tremendous accomplishment none, nonetheless. So commendation to Michoacan, Mexico. And I must give a commendation to Amy Schneider. The former software engineering manager has won Jeopardy's Tournament of Champions. This was 
an incredible tournament. Now, a lot of you who watch Jeopardy probably remembered Amy from her incredible 40-game win streak. That is the second longest winning streak in the history of Jeopardy, second only to Ken Jennings. And this tournament of champions had three people who have the longest Jeopardy streaks in history as contestants. You had Matea Roach in there, and I believe you had uh, Matt Amodio in there. And to see the three of them face off against one another was great. And Amy Schneider, uh, she made it all the way to the finals. She did a great job, and ultimately she won the best out of seven series. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories now about whether she threw a game. There's a conspiracy about one of the questions involving um, a biblical response. But you can't take away her victory. She's an incredible player. And the fact that she won that last game without finding any daily doubles was incredible. You watch those games, and the wagering and the daily doubles are so important. There was one game last week where the fella Andy or Andrew was was competing, and he hit. The, he found the daily double, bet all his money, hit it for the lead, found another daily double, and doubled down again, and he didn't get it. Lost all his money and cost him the game. Had he not done that. He probably would have won that game. But uh, this is just remarkable. Uh, you win not only an incredible winning streak at Jeopardy, but to win the Tournament of Champions like this. What I want to see is her against um, Ken Jennings and James Holtzauer. That's what I want to see. I uh, want to also give a commendation to Ray Rochelle. This is some story. You know, the fashionable thing on radio and on television these days is to bash old people. Yeah, we don't need Trump and Biden and Pelosi and Schumer and Grassley and McConnell running things. These guys are all in their 70s and 80s. They should step aside, let young people take over. None of the other countries have old world leaders like we do. I, look, putting aside the merits of any of the political figures that I just mentioned, I think it's great when older folks are still playing a role in our society. And, you know, some of the people who are detractors of our show, oh, whenever I point out that we're number one in the ratings, these smart Alex try to come out and say, well, yeah, but all your listeners are so old. You know what I say in response? Good. I would rather have old people listening to this show than anybody else because they have a lot of wisdom that you don't. And I, I really love finding examples of old, older folks because, you know, look, if you're 35, that's old to play for the Yankees, but it's not really old in any other aspect of life, right? But I love finding examples of people who are older who are doing extraordinary things. And that is absolutely the case with Ray Rochelle. After 17 years serving in the North Dakota Army National Guard, 49-year-old Ray Rochelle decided to enroll in the North Dakota College of Science and try out for the school's undefeated football team. And lo and behold, he made the team. So he, at first, they thought he was another football coach on the first day of camp. And whenever he got in to put his pads on, they, they're like, wait a minute, you're playing? And despite playing against children who are more than half his age, 
This fella fit right in, impressed the head coach, and earned a spot on the team. So I'm giving him credit not only for serving in the National Guard, but for trying this. I am a big believer that you should keep trying new things. I think that's what Hannibal Lecter's mom told him. And I think the older you get, the more important it is to find new challenges. And, uh, you know, it's one of the many reasons I just so admire my dad. My dad ran two marathons, didn't run his first marathon until he was uh, 54 years old. Marathon running is very much a young person's game. And uh, I really give Ray Rochelle a whole lot of credit for not only being willing to do this, but for being being able to do it. Uh, so, Ray Rochelle, I do commend you. I must also commend Rich Fierro. By now, you've probably heard this story many times. Rich Fierro um, was the is the Army veteran that subdued this attacker. Unarmed, by the way, in Colorado. Yet another another day goes by, another mass shooting. And um, a lot of times these mass shooting incidents could have been so much worse, but for the intervention of a brave person. And sure enough, Rich Fierro, who, like a lot of heroes, is saying, don't call me a hero, I just did what needed to be done. Well, he is a hero and, and saved, who knows, how many people's lives by disarming the shooter in Colorado Springs. Hey, speaking of age, I also want to give a commendation to Angela Alvarez, crowned best new artist at the Latin Grammys. How old is she? 95 years old. And she just brought home a Latin Grammy for best new artist, becoming the musical awards show's Oldest winner ever. Winning a Grammy for the first time at 95 years old. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I love everything about this story. And uh, I give her a lot of credit. Hey, have you been following the story of uh, Sam Bankman Freed and uh, the what looks to me like a Ponzi scheme that he was running with FTX? Well... The thing that's interesting about this is the staggering level of deception staged by this former crypto king who was the toast of high society. It was not co- it was not uncovered by government investigators. Wasn't uncovered by the SEC or the IRS. No. It was not uncovered by a major powerhouse financial News organization like the Wall Street Journal or CNBC. Instead, the public's first glimpse at the alleged wrongdoing of Bankman Freed came earlier this month from a tiny, small news website unknown to much of the public that has spent years chronicling the turbulent and murky world of crypto. It's a media outlet called Coindesk. And I give them credit for breaking this story wide open. This story was there for anybody to uncover. And Coindesk did it just by doing some plain old-fashioned investigative reporting. In fact, the reporter and editor duo who worked to break this story, which prompted a stunning 
cascade of events that led to the evaporation of billions of dollars. They didn't realize the scoop they had on their hands when they first obtained a document that cast all sorts of doubt on the stability of SBF's crypto empire. Ian Allison is the reporter. He emailed the editor, Nick Baker, about his initial story plan. He said, hi, Nick. I'm looking at some stuff to do with Alameda if you want to chat this week. No mad rush. See, Allison had obtained a financial document that showed SBF had uh, uh, freed, Sam Bankman freed. They call him SBF, like AOC, LBJ, JFK. SBF had engaged in shady behavior to use his crypto company, FTX, to prop up his separate investment firm, Alameda. But that wasn't clear at first glance, and it took a couple of days to figure out the story. And the editor said that both he and the reporter, Ian Allison, knew that it was an important document to have, but emphasized that the two of them had no understanding at first of the massive story that was buried in the spreadsheet of numbers. This is from the editor. Did I know that I'd be speaking to you today? Hell no. I had no expectation that it was going to be that gigantic. But over the next couple of days, this editor, Baker, Nick Baker, from his home office right here in New York, worked with Ian Allison, the reporter who lives in Scotland, to chisel down the financial document into a story. And on November 2nd, they hit publish, and the whole world changed. It's been an information explosion. And I give them a lot of credit for this, and uh, good for them. The least I can do is give them a commendation. Uh, coin desk. And finally, I want to give a commendation to Washington State. Washington State once again ranks as the best state in the country, according to a new national report. That's right. Uh, this is from, um, let's see, what ranking is this? Well, it's from, I think it's called Unsplash. But anyway, Um, they're number one out of 50 for a whole bunch of reasons, and they measure all sorts of different factors, Uh, culture, weather, economy, quality of life, gas prices, inflation, you name it. Uh, They uh, Food, restaurant availability. And uh, if you want to know the top five states people are leaving to move to Washington— you got Arizona, Idaho, Texas, and um, Oregon and California. So isn't that interesting? Blue states and red states, people are moving out of them to move to Washington State. There you have it. Uh, I'm trying to. Th- I, I was in Washington State one time. I went to Seattle. It was fine. It was fine. I didn't. I wasn't wowed. I must say, but it was fine. Nice enough. All right. Uh, that is this week's commendations. If you want to comment on anyone that I have commended. You are welcome to give me a call at 800-848-9222. That is 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is obviously the title song to the motion picture fame. It is being sung by one of the stars of that film, Irene Cara, who unfortunately has uh, passed away at uh, the age of 63. Uh, At least as of yesterday, they still didn't have a cause of death, at least not one disclosed. Uh, They said, her publicist said that um, the cause was unknown and would be released when information was available. You know, I've actually never seen, this is going to shock you, I've never seen the film Flashdance, which was Irene Cara's other big uh, motion picture. Obviously, I'm familiar with the song from Flashdance, but uh, she sang the title tracks of two beloved song and dance movies of the 1980s, Flashdance and Fame, and obviously I'm a big fan of Fame, and uh, I have two siblings that actually went to LaGuardia, which is kind of the school that's depicted in Fame, and um, a great talent Irene Cara was. I didn't really follow her in much else beyond that, either musically or um, or acting wise but uh, she was great in that movie so I'm uh, I don't know much about Irene Cara beyond the fact that uh, she was a child star growing up in the Bronx and um, she uh, you know there was always a lot of controversy about exactly how old she was uh, they, they say she was born in 1959 but she repeatedly disputed reports about the year that she was born at times describing it as 1964. Her official Twitter account says she was born in 1962. Um, So, uh, who knows? Who knows? But um, that's that. Um, It goes to show, you know, in some ways, it's a very American story. Her mother was a cashier, and her father was a saxophonist who worked in a steel factory. And here she went on to be a big star, big recording star, big movie star. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's like the Jay Black song, right? Only in America. All right. A couple of quick things here. One, I, um, I'll give you a quick update if you care about my shaving situation. If you haven't heard about this, I had this brand of razors that I used because of my razor bumps. And basically what it would do, it's called a bump fighter. And what the what it would do was, and I had two versions of it, both disposable and a, the, a cartridge that you replace. And it's sort of a dull blade, so it doesn't actually shave you. What it does is it kind of trims the hair on your face. So you never really get a super close shave, which I like, but which causes razor bumps. Of course, knowing my my luck, they discontinue this razor blade. I go online to try to find it's discontinued. They stopped making it. And you could buy it on eBay, but I don't know. I don't want to go to the trouble of buying it on eBay. So I do a little research about the best razor blades to buy with people who have either razor bumps or sensitive skin. And I have both. And I come up with this one. I think it's bevel something. And I use it for the first time on Wednesday night. And I was rushing and I was shaving in the shower, and it's a bloodbath. It's a bloodbath. M- my shower looked like the Janet Lee shower from Psycho. I mean, it was it was horrendous. It was a horror movie in there. I asked my wife to help me bandage some of my wounds 
she was almost ready to pass out at, at seeing the amount of blood. So um, I figured it was because I was rushing and because I was stressed and because I wasn't used to this particular razor. I wasn't maybe careful enough. So Saturday comes around. We're having people over for Carmine's birthday. And I like this razor. I like the close shave that it gives you because I like a close shave. I just don't like that it, you know, can produce razor bumps. So I said, let me try again. I'm not going to do it in the shower. I'm going to do it after the shower while my face is still moist and pliable and warm. And I'm going to do my shaving then. Lo and behold, I get four relatively minor nicks that are all bleeding. But I have to go and pick up the food for, you know, Carmine's party. We catered. And again, if you weren't invited, it was really just only family. Uh, but almost every, I think everybody that was there was either a blood relative or related through marriage. So if you consider yourself a close friend of mine and you weren't invited. Um, the, the only person that I made a point to invite that we're not related to was Curtis so that he couldn't complain about not being invited. Of course, Curtis made up the fact that he was not invited, but he was. Okay. But he didn't come. It's fine. So um, then Rachel sees, you know, my face again that I'm bleeding all over the place. She's trying to help me get some bandages. And I said, I'll take these bandages off before the people come. She said, you know, you have a couple of spots that you missed still. So I can't have that. So I think I'm going to have two relatively easy quick shaves. Go back up to the bathroom. I'm already bleeding. And I try and trim the two spots that I missed. And lo and behold, I cut my upper lip right beneath my nose. I get the hair, but this is a serious gash. It won't stop bleeding. It was bleeding for no exaggeration, 45 minutes to an hour. It would not stop. I had to I had to go to the place that we ordered the food from holding a napkin or a paper towel and keep dashing at my lip cuz I feel like I'm bleeding like a, a mental patient no disrespect to any mental patient and I'm in the store and they kept me it was packed so they kept me waiting for about 20 30 minutes by the time I come back home my house is now loaded with people because the start time of the party is one. And it worked out for me because I hadn't had people to help me bring in all this food. It's loaded with people. And my lip is still bleeding. And it, it can, keeps bleeding for another 20 minutes. So I don't see how I can keep using this razor. If anyone out there suffers from razor bumps and has a razor other than the bump fighter that they use and recommend... Please email me. My email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com because this is now unsustainable. I don't think uh, if uh, I think I'm afraid if I shave again, they're going to have to rush me to the emergency room at the amount of blood that I'm I'm losing. When I when I go to give blood to donate platelets, I don't think they take as much blood as I'm giving away when I just try to get rid of my five o'clock shadow. So let me tell you what I'm asking you not to do. And I was on uh, a show on WCBM in Baltimore. Big shout out to our listeners in Charm City last night. 
And the great host there, Kevin Battle, he used to be um, on KDKA in Pittsburgh. He used to be a New Yorker, but now, now he's doing a great job at WCBM in Baltimore. He said, well, you know, a lot of times I can't sleep at night and I listen to you. I'm going to research this for you. Don't research. If you suffer from razor bumps and you have a specific razor that has not been discontinued that you recommend, let me know. Because I don't know what the problem is with this bevel, but it's it's not working for me. Not working for me. Um, and now that I have these nicks on my face, I'm afraid to cut them open again. So, and, and the electric razor, it's just not effective. It's not effective. It leaves too much of a beard. I will use that in the meantime, but, uh, you know, it's not effective. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about. But I, that was my a big portion of my Saturday afternoon, is trying to set up for this party and run around and pick up food and, you know, help Rachel and deal, hold Carmine, deal with Carmine, change Carmine. All while bleeding, I don't want to say profusely, but bleeding, bleeding pretty significantly from my upper lip. Really. So I, I'm not, I don't think I could use this razor again. On the one hand, I hate to give up because I still have 10 razor blades that came with this razor. And on the other hand, I do like this razor. But it's just it's cutting me too much. So if you have a suggestion, please email me. Not a re, Don't research it for me. Only if you can recommend it from personal firsthand knowledge. All right. 800-848-9222. Patrick is in Huntington. Hello, Patrick. Good morning, Frank. Morning. The best part of that fish story, and I was hoping I was going to Google it if you didn't say it was, he let the fish go. Yes, I completely agree. Why should somebody else be uh, denied the opportunity to uh, to catch to catch the carrot, and you know, I don't think it's a really it twenty years old fish. You know, God bless him. You know. Oh yeah, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. But getting back to your blood, you talked about the blood. Uh, you spoke about donations last week. I gave a pint over the weekend. But are you on taking aspirins or anything? No, uh, no. All right. Well, you must fill that pint bag up pretty quick then. I mean, it's <laughs> it's got some. It's got some. Uh, uh, advantages, uh, you know, if if you have a little thinner blood. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I I um I squeeze pretty regularly when they tell you to squeeze, and obviously you know you're a donor, Patrick. So when you uh, when you do platelets, you have to squeeze and then and then retract, and uh, depending on whether the blood is leaving you or coming to you. So I I think I uh, squeeze pretty. You know, pretty regularly and pretty effectively. But uh, I wouldn't say my blood is uh, is character un- uncharacteristically thin. But who knows? Maybe it is. I think I just gashed myself with this razor. But Patrick, yeah. thank you for the call. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. One more thing. Sure. How do you like the questionnaire? Any more questions? Can they put on this thing? My what? God. The, uh, oh, for the uh, for the to give blood. You mean? Oh, it's just getting longer and longer and you know, longer. There's about. <laughs> 50 questions. You're so right. You know, at least, though, when I first started doing this, and I'm sure this was the case with you, they you'd have to fill it out by paper. At least now, where I go, you, they give yeah. you a little mini computer that you could fill it yeah. all out on, which was relatively quick. Especially if you're like me, you just hit no, 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 yes. No, 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 yes. You know, so uh, it, it is what it is. It's, it doesn't take that long. 
Yeah, I'm waiting for it. You know, how you had pork for dinner last night. You know, it's it's, it's, it's getting really crazy. It's right, a good one, care. Patrick. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to my buddy Joe in Ron Kunkama. Hey, Joe, how are you feeling? Good, good, good. How was your Thanksgiving? It was really, really good. How was yours? Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, belated happy birthday to your son. Thanks. I have the same. Uh, issue um, with sensitive skin and Frank, I was using all types of razors, cutting and, and it looked like it came out of a, a war. I found that Harry's makes a uh, blade and um, you can buy it at Kohl's, you can buy them online. They glide over my face. They're not expensive. You can actually subscribe to them where you don't have to worry and they send them to you well, in which, the mail. Which type though? Because I know Harry's makes a few different types. Well, you got to look on their website. Uh, if you have very, very sensitive, one, they have they. You got to go on their website. They have if you have like we, your blade might be a little bit different than the one that I used. I just get very like um, when I shave, I get ro- rosaceous. Right, it's a little bit red. Ever since I've been using, I use very little shaving cream, and it. Oh my God, it's like smoother than smooth. Well, yeah, I'm willing to try it. Harry's has got a great reputation, and uh, my buddy Joe Piscopo, he swears by Harry's. My uh, yeah. my wife picked me up some Harry's blades, but she got one that's like, she got a razor blade that's five blades. Now, I'm not about to use a five-blade razor because I'm, I'm, I'm chopping my face to death with one, one razor, five. I'm going to look like Freddy Krueger or Edward Scissorhands gave me a shave. Thank you, Joe. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll look, I'll, you know, because I got to try something new. But I think it's, Harry's makes a variety of different types. So if they have one that's specifically designed for people with razor bumps, so be it. I'll try that. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, how are you, Frank? Uh, happy birthday to Happy birthday to your son. Uh, love your show. Thank I you. had exactly the same problem you did. I used those bump fighters for years and years and years, and I was at a real loss once they stopped making them. Why, why did I, they discontinue them? People like you and me, you know, were dependent upon them, and there was really no other product like them. Why did they do away with them? No idea. I did a little research. I found that the company had been bought, so whoever oh. was making it originally changed hands, and that was the problem. I see. But here's okay. the thing. So many razors have multiple blades, and I think that's part of the problem. It's too close a shave. So I got a razor called One Blade, and it has, naturally, one blade. And it's it's been working fine for me. you got to get used to it because it is a little closer than Bump Fighter. What what, uh, what brand? It's called One Blade. Oh, that's, that's the name of it. it. Okay, okay. O-N-E-B-L-A-D-E. Got it. I, I so, will try this because the one I'm using now... Um, it is one blade, uh, but um, it's just I'm I'm cutting myself up too much. I will have to. Uh, yeah. I'm going to try yours, the one blade uh, razor. Right. Okay, I'm going to so order I this take, online. I take I take a hot shower. I use some Aveeno shaving cream. Come right out and shave, and the one blade does the trick. Uh, and it's the manual, not the not the electric yes. you use, right? Exactly. All right, yes. I'm I'm going to try this. It's uh, forty bucks. Does that sound about right? Yes, and you can subscribe to it, and you get the you get the blades. But uh, it's 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 been working for me, and I was so loyal to that uh, bump fighter. Oh, I, you know, well that's helpful. I'm ordering this now. I'm going to let you know how this works out. Terrific, Frank. Enjoy your show. Take Thank care. you very much, Eric. See, that's helpful. 
See, the guy says, I'm dealing with the same thing you are. And uh, boom, there you go. I, I, so who knows? Maybe it'll work. Maybe not. 800-848-9222. I've had it up to I hate to say this because, one, I know a lot of you get upset when I say this. Two, I don't like to be critical of other world leaders. Three, I don't like to be critical in people that are dealing or in the middle of a war. I have to say, I have had it up to here with Vladimir Zelensky. Have you seen the latest from Zelensky? Now, um, I respect what he's where he's coming from and what he's trying to do. Zelensky, obviously, is the president of Ukraine. He was a comedian that used to go on uh, game shows and pretend to play musical instruments with his genitalia. And that's who the Ukrainians elected. Now, nothing against it. We, you know, we elected an actor. We elected a reality show star. Uh, I'm all for people that come from non-traditional backgrounds. But now Zelensky, you know, he's not doing anything to take the temperature down in Ukraine and Russia. And um, we just sent over another, meaning we, the American taxpayers. We just sent over another $400 million to Ukraine. It's just unsustainable. It is unsustainable. And Zelensky, $400 million more in aid to Ukraine. It's just, when is enough enough? Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he announces $400 million like, uh, like I say, can you bring me a cup of coffee? Uh, military aid package to Ukraine. Additional arms munitions. Additional air defense equipment. Now, I, the thing that I, I don't understand is we are not going to give the Ukrainians enough weapons to win this war against the Russians. Two is um, we, we're really doing the Ukrainians a disservice by prolonging this war rather than affecting a settlement and trying to bring about a diplomatic solution. <laughs> And here comes Zelensky, who's insisting, wherever he'll be heard, that not only are we going to, the Ukrainians, going to expel the Russians from the territory that they have uh, gained since this war began uh, six months ago, but there will be no peace until the Ukrainians get back Crimea. This is uh, Zelensky speaking to Bloomberg. Our war is the war for our lives. As you do remember the um, scale of occupation by Russia of our territory and what happened in the 24th of February. And our objective was to stay strong and bring back the life and on our land. Unless we deoccupy our whole territory, this will not bring peace to us. Unfortunately, this is the leader of Russian Federation. This is his decision. We see this. They don't want Ukraine to develop. 
Ukraine has chosen its way forward and it will develop. And it is developing. In some areas, we're developing faster, even during the war, than Russia Federation, which doesn't have war on its soil. And so for the stability of the situation for our country, we, we have to take certain steps. And I think that restoration of territorial integrity of our country is one of those important steps to be made, and also the support of international community. So think about what he's saying, essentially. Crimea has been part of Russia from the time of Catherine the Great till the time of Stalin. And yet they are not going to end this war. They're not going to stop fighting. And I realize they were invaded, and I'm not excusing Russian aggression. But they're not going to stop fighting until the Ukrainians get back Crimea. I think everybody acknowledges Crimea will never be part of Ukraine again. And you're making that a condition for peace? Come on. Come on, Zelensky. Get with the program. Uh, I have a lot of other stuff to say on this, but uh, what's the point, right? I'm just going to upset people needlessly. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano. This song is called Lorraine by a group called Bad Manners. We dedicate this to uh, Carmine's babysitter, uh, Lorraine Scanny, who's just terrific. And um, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, just search uh, The Other Side of Midnight on Facebook. You can join our Facebook group and we will post the music selections uh, pretty much every day, uh, barring any major problems. Friday, obviously, was Thursday, rather, was absolute chaos. So we didn't have an opportunity to do that, uh, but we'll be back doing that today. 800-848-9222. You can find me on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Let me say hello to Michael in Connecticut. Hello, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here. Great. How are you, Frank? Great. I want to say the Phillips one blade, like the uh, gentleman who just mentioned before, it's a great razor. It's uh, wet and dry. It's uh, actually a, an electric uh, trimmer. Uh, you trim against the grain, and I got to tell you, it sounds counterintuitive, but it is single-handedly the best thing since sliced bread well, for shaving I, your face. You, again, I, I've always found uh, the invention of sliced bread to be somewhat overrated. Uh, but I appreciate the, the, you know, that it's just a colloquialism. Thank you, Michael. It looks like it comes in two different versions, the electric, as you mentioned, and the, um, you know, the non-electric that uh, that the other caller had mentioned. Uh, I ordered the non-electric. So we'll see how it works out. Should be here by Monday. No, uh, 
by tomorrow. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Yeah, sorry, Frank. You caught me by surprise. Good morning, Frank. Well, um, Rick, about, but you, about... you, you called me. How can I catch you by surprise? Well, you were just on the phone with another guy. Did you just hang up with him immediately or something? I mean, he just hung. He just answered. I don't know. He made his okay. comment, and then, I don't know. I didn't see well, where the conversation I, I was going to go from there. seconds, so I, I, I picked up a bag and had to put it down. I'm sorry. I what was it a bag of, Rick? Uh, potato chips. Potato chips. Butter. Regular or yeah. sour cream and onion or something? Salt and vinegar? Salt, salt and vinegar. Salt and vinegar. Uh, so you like salt and vinegar. Yeah, I do. You know, it's not my thing. Salt and vinegar is one of those potato chips. I'm not a big chip guy in general. I like corn chips. But um, it's one of those things. Salt and vinegar is very polarizing as a chip. And I remember about, um, uh, I guess maybe about 30 years ago, I came across a bag of salt and vinegar potato chips. And I inhaled. I'm going to put you on hold, Rick. You'll make your comment on a bridge when we return. I inhaled and I almost choked because I was just so I found this the 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 way that it smelled so offensive. So I've stayed away from them for the last 30 years, but the people that love them love them. I'm just not one. Maybe it's like uh cilantro tastes weird to certain people, not me. All right, until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, tomorrow, I'm uh, very excited about this. We'll see how this goes. Sometimes I have ideas for segments on the radio that work much better in my brain than they do in practice. But you know what? I'm all for pushing the envelope. I'm all for experimenting. So tomorrow, we're supposed to have a a terrific hypnotist in studio here, uh, Dr. John Cherbone, and we may have him hypnotize some of the fellows on the crew here. So far, I have uh, I have asked a number of our colleagues if they would like to be hypnotized to do some stage hypnosis. So far, uh, Alex Barnard has accepted. And Matt Blaze, I noticed you did not answer my email about uh, being hypnotized tomorrow. Yeah, I did forget. You did forget. I, I saw your email, but not in hell chance. Why not? What are you I afraid of? getting hypnotized. Well, how come? Just not going to happen. Well, how come? Are you going to get involved? I have to host the show. Oh, and I have to run the board of the show. Yeah, I know, but come on. No. Never going to happen. Not going to happen? All right. I would get hypnotized. I've tried, and I'm going to bring this up with John Trebone tomorrow because we're going to talk about hypnosis. 
I tried to get hypnotized, I think twice. Once was at a Star Trek convention, maybe about 24, 25 years ago in New York. And and I was really excited about this because I've always been fascinated by hypnosis. And I've seen a lot of people do stage hypnosis and they look really into it. You see these people acting foolish or acting funny or saying funny things or doing funny things. And they don't appear to be doing it involuntarily, meaning they don't appear to be doing it. They don't appear to be putting on a show. They they don't appear to be staging it. They appear to be really hypnotized to do this stuff. And I thought it would be so much fun. And I really went into this experience 25 years ago or so really eager to be hypnotized. It really – it didn't do anything for me. I, I I don't know if maybe that was not a good hypnotist, but then we got on the – so meanwhile, I took time away from the Star Trek convention and visiting all the vendors and stuff. And I went with my mom and uh, visit, and seeing the Q&A. It was a really interesting convention. And um, – I took time away from that to go backstage, get hypnotized, and then you go on stage, and then all of a sudden you're supposed to, when you get certain cues, act all crazy and stuff, and I don't remember what I was supposed to do, but it didn't really work for me. I didn't feel compelled to do any of these things, but it worked for everybody else on the show, so I don't know. I'd love to think maybe it's because I'm so strong-brained, but uh, that's certainly not the case. And then one other time... I've always been fascinated by hypnosis, and I always love doing this stuff. So when I was on TV uh, doing Moranovision, I had a hypnotist on, and I asked him to hypnotize me to, I forget what, but just basically to see if it would work, and it didn't work for me. But I had another friend of mine on the show. He hypnotized him no problem. He hypnotized my friend Mike Napolitano. And got him to be unable to say the number five. It was really incredible. It was fun. I mean, it was neat. You know, you'd ask him to do math equations, and he wouldn't be able to do the number five. He wouldn't be able to say the number five. So maybe we'll do some stuff like that. I don't know what Dr. Trebone has in mind, uh, but I think he's a doctor. But um, I'm going to ask him why these two previous attempts on me didn't work. I would happily be hypnotized. Happily. Love to. Um, all right. We're going to – there's a story that's kind of sad I want to bring to your attention in just a moment. But uh, the original Rick was uh, in the midst of uh, complaining about how we got to him when he was not expecting to be called upon. So we're going to try again and hope he's at a point in his consumption of these salt and vinegar potato chips that he's able to give us a few comments. Hello, Rick. Yeah, I'm right here, Frank. Immediately. How Excellent. about that? Wow, that's okay. Stellar. Listen, before we get to before we get to the uh, the bumps, you know, the shaving. You just mentioned the hypnosis. When I was 12 years old, I was actually considered the youngest uh, trained hypnotist in the United States. Believe it or not, from uh, the Ethical Hypnosis Training Center. Really? Oh. By Harry Aaron's. Because I know you you search this stuff up. Harry Aaron's. In Irvington, New Jersey. Yeah. So why did, why didn't you keep up with it? Well, because it, most of these people were making money with it. You know, you have to first of all, you have to be a real showman to do it on stage, right. not just a hypnotist. You know, you got to be, you know, like a ventriloquist. You got to be a showman to do it, not just doing it at parties at home. So I wasn't a showman, but these this training center was for doctors and psychiatrists and stuff. 
a dentist would use hypnoanesthesia for people that couldn't be. Put oh, I believe anesthesia. it. I believe it. I'm very yeah. impressed with yeah. uh, with hypnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, Self hypnosis. You have to be hypnotized by a hypnotist and given a, a a word or something. When you say that word to yourself, you then go back into hypnosis because he had hypnotized you right. first and told you to. You can't just automatically hypnotize yourself. That doesn't work. That's yeah, I, I understand. I understand. All right. Yeah. So um, what else did you have to add there, Rick? The bumps, the bumps, the bumps, the bumps that you're, that you're getting on your face. <clears throat> I have always lived in uh, Afro-American uh, you know, uh, neighborhoods and stuff, so I have a lot of Afro-American friends. And they have a big problem with razor bumps because of their, the, the type of thick beard they have. They use a depilatory cream. Yeah, I, I've read that. I've read that. And I just thought maybe you might, you know, if you're really having a hard time, think about just doing that, waiting five minutes, wiping it off, and you got a clean thing. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Rick. We'll we'll consider that. 800-848-9222. If you are – now, let me tell you about this story. This this is a sad story, but I think it's an important one to talk about. Katie Meyer. You know Katie Meyer? Katie Meyer was a star – soccer goalie who took her own life last spring. And now her parents have filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Stanford. At the time of her death, Katie Meyer was facing disciplinary action for allegedly spilling coffee on a Stanford football player who was accused of sexually assaulting a female soccer player. Meyer's father said his daughter was defending that teammate who was a minor at the time. Here was uh, the uh, parents of Katie Meyer speaking to the Today Show back in March about why they think their daughter killed herself. Katie being Katie um, was defending a teammate on campus over an incident and the repercussions of her defending that teammate we have not seen that email yet. She had been getting letters for a couple months. This letter was kind of the final letter that there was going to be uh, a trial or a, some kind of something. This is the only thing that we can come up with that, that triggered something. So now they filed this lawsuit, wrongful death lawsuit. The lawsuit states that on the night of her death, Stanford, quote, negligently and recklessly sent her the formal disciplinary notice that, quote, contained threatening language regarding sanctions and potential removal from the university. So on the night of February 28th, Meyer FaceTimed her parents and two sisters from her dorm room at Stanford and was in a good mood, according to her mother. They were coordinating her plans for spring break, which included a stop home in Southern California before a few days in Mexico with friends. However, her parents say that later that evening, Meyer received the six-page email from Stanford in six pages, geez, informing her of a disciplinary hearing. The next day, Meyer was found dead in her dorm room, where she also lived as a, an RA, a resident advisor. An autopsy performed March 3rd confirmed the manner of death was from suicide. 
This is from the lawsuit. Stanford's after-hours disciplinary charge and reckless nature and manner of submission to Katie caused Katie to suffer an acute stress reaction that impulsively led to her suicide. Katie's suicide was completed without planning and solely in response to the shocking and deeply distressing information she received from Stanford while alone in her room without any support or resources. In a statement to several media outlets, Stanford spokesman uh, spokesperson Dean Mustafi rebutted the lawsuit's claims, saying, The Stanford community continues to, gr- to grieve Katie's tragic death, and we sympathize with her family for the unimaginable pain that Katie's passing has caused them. However, we strongly disagree with any assertion that the university is responsible for her death. While we have not yet seen the formal complaint brought by the Meyer family, we are aware of some of the allegations made in the filing, which are false and misleading. So my question for you is this. Um, Do you think they have a case? Do you think the family has a case? Now, I think we can all stipulate, wherever you come down on the viewing of this lawsuit, that... This is incredibly sad. You had a young woman, um, not that it matters, but a great athlete, very bright. She was studying international relations and history. She was a senior, uh, very pretty, and she was a great player. Made two key saves in a penalty shootout to help Stanford win the national championship in 2019. She was a part of the prestigious Mayfield Fellows Program. She. This is a woman who had everything in the world to live for. She gets in trouble. She gets this long letter, six pages from Stanford after hours via email. And between the time she gets that letter and the morning, she kills herself. No note, as I understand it. And the parents are saying she killed herself because of the way that Stanford handled disciplining her. And now they've got a wrongful death suit. Where do you think this goes? And if you were on that jury, we're going to make this a radio jury. If you were on that jury, where would you come down on this? 800-848-9222. I'll tell you where I come down on this. One, I think Stanford handled this poorly. If you've ever seen the film uh, Up in the Air, we've talked about this before, the best and worst ways to let someone go. This is almost a way of... uh, Uh, You have to handle this almost the same way. I think this probably should have been given to her in person. Someone should have been there to, because you never know how people are going to react, to uh, be a resource for her, to offer any sort of counseling or advice if she was having difficulty dealing with the emotional fallout of this. But I really do think that whenever, in the overwhelming number of cases... Whenever someone makes the decision to take their own life, it's not one, and this is my opinion, not that I am a professional by any stretch, it's not one thing that's causing them to take their own life. It's a multitude of factors. And I I really think you have to be seriously depressed and dealing with some serious issues related to mental turmoil. Because how else could, you know, one person... Two people 
experience the same setback, the same trauma, whatever that trauma is, whatever that setback is. Maybe it's a, a girlfriend or a, a husband breaks up with you. Maybe it's you um, get a disciplinary letter. Maybe it's you lose your job. And why is it that one person will kill themselves and another person will not? So I do think Stanford handled this wrong. But I think, honestly, it's a pretty big leap to say that because she got this letter and because Stanford handled it in the parents' view recklessly that um, that she killed herself. Is There's no, as far as I'm aware, no mental health professional that's testifying to this, no friend that's testifying to this, no note that uh, ten- testifies to this. So I hate to do this because I hate to see this, you know, as, as a parent, I have a whole new appreciation for this kind of thing now. But um, I, I feel horrible for the parents. But if I were on the jury, I would not find in their favor. I hope Stanford changes some of the way they handle disciplinary proceedings in the future. But if I were on this jury, sorry, I hate to say it that way, but uh, I would not find in their favor. What would you do? You're on the jury, wrongful death suit. They're saying that Stanford sending this letter and handling this in the manner they did caused this young woman who had everything in the world to live for to kill herself. She was in a good mood until she got that letter talking about future plans. And then she immediately becomes despondent. 800-848-9222. You have a take on this, Matt Blaze? Yeah, was this letter, was this the first letter or this was the disciplinary action? In other words, usually... When it's something like this magnitude, there's sort of like a civil like hearing almost. Yeah, it sounds like this was a this letter. This was the action handed down? No, I don't think so. It sounds like this was the formal disciplinary notice right. that was going to advise her of the next steps towards a hearing, which potentially included removal from the school. Yeah, that's a pretty big leap. Right. So yeah, you say, with me on. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. There's no way that somebody goes from being totally happy to melting down to the point where they kill themselves over a letter like this or any letter yeah. really and again i don't want to um i don't want to over i don't want to i don't want to diminish oh no not that at all i really do think stanford could have handled this much better right. you know um again i was started talking about that movie up in the air but in that in that picture which is a very good picture uh george clooney and um you know a bunch of other people that are good in it and there's this company that fires people, and they go. Companies bring this third party company in to handle the firing of people, and they do it in a way where they give you some literature. They do it in a way that you know is makes a difficult thing okay. I, I guess is the best way you can say. It. You know, it's so funny. I got to just tell you this story. Um, you know, we have a very convivial neighborhood, right, and. Three weeks ago, one of my neighbors, he said, uh, hey, you know, my brother-in-law loves your dad. And I don't think this guy has ever met my dad. So he he knows my son is named Carmine and my dad is named Carmine. So he he says, uh, yeah, you know, he credits your dad with uh, 
encouraging him to get started in XYZ business. So I don't know if he worked for your dad or what, but the guy just loves him. And he mentions his name, and it was not a name I ever heard. So then a week or two goes by, I see this fellow's wife, meaning the person whose brother was just being described to me. And so she's walking her dog, and she says, I tell you, my brother absolutely loves your dad. And she mentions his name. She says he talks about him all the time. Hasn't seen him in years, but talks about him all the time. Credits him with changing his whole life. And she tells me his name. So I see my dad Saturday at uh, at his grandson's first birthday. And I said, hey, dad, do you know the name? And I give him the name as best I can remember it. I, I'm pretty sure I got it pretty close. And uh, he says, no, that doesn't ring a bell. And I said, well, I don't know if this guy worked for you or if you, you were just a mentor to him or what the deal is. But I'm telling you, I just spoke with his brother-in-law and his sister and they're, they're saying that you changed this guy's life. You encouraged him to go on this path of uh, X, Y, Z, whatever. <laughs> My father said to me, uh, that sounds exactly like what I would say when I was firing someone. <laughs> So I'm not going to tell this to my neighbors, but uh, it sounds like my dad probably fired this guy and said, why don't you try X? And the guy tried X and it worked out for him. So it all it's all in the delivery is the point I'm trying to make. I don't mean to be laughing while we're talking about um, while we're talking about something like suicide. But it uh, I, I think the point is is uh, right on the money. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with David in the Bronx. David, what do you think? Oh, about the uh, suicide. Um, the girl, I don't think the, the college had any way of knowing that this letter would uh, cause such a thing. If it did, there's no way to prove right. it. Right. And I'm worried about the kind of attorney that encouraged these parents to file this lawsuit. I don't know if they're hoping to squeeze out a settlement or something, but I think it was unethical. And I also think that the um, the fact that colleges are handling these type of cases inside, this was an assault, you know, pouring coffee on someone. Why wasn't that being handled criminally by the local uh, authorities? Well, hey, that's a fair point. But doesn't there have to be some sort of discipline by the by the college as well for something like that? No, I, I agree that that's true. But, you know, it just seems odd to me that this girl who seemingly had everything to live for, and no hint of any suicidal tendencies at all would, would receive this, which was not unexpected, because like you said, right. this was an ongoing process. Right. And then she suddenly decides, after speaking to her parents earlier, to kill herself. Why didn't she call her parents? You know, I, what I'm worried about regarding her parents, too, is this. The defense attorneys for the college are going to dig up this girl's background. They're going to attack her parents. I hope they're prepared for what they're going to face. And you know what? I And David, all good points. Thank you. You know what I worry about? Um, let's say they win this case, and either they get a judgment in their favor, or they get Stanford says, "Ah, I don't want to deal with this. We're going to give these guys a nice settlement of five million dollars, whatever, two million, whatever, a lot of money, because you don't have to pay uh, you don't have to pay taxes on those those settlements, which is big." Then my fear is this: to David's point about the attorney's role in this. College students occasionally kill themselves. You know, I went to NYU. There was a string uh, one summer of 
something like five or six people killing themselves within a year and a half there. It happens. It's just, uh, and it's terrible, but it happens. I do worry that lawyers that are looking to make money quickly will then reach out to parents of these suicidal teenagers or young adults and say, you know, is there anything that was going on at school, any role that the school played in, um, in, that could have led to her to have acute stress and depression? And I re- you know, they have ambulance chasers. They call them ambulance chasers for injuries. This could be a situation where we have a, a whole new cadre, a whole new cottage industry of, of attorneys, you know, suicide chasers, essentially. So I, I don't think, and this is so uh, very sad, and I, and I want the parents to have money because they don't have their daughter. Uh, but, and I do, I do think Stanford handled this poorly. But we still, as far as I know, there's no note that says I'm killing myself because of what Stanford did. So it's a, as Matt Blaze said, it's very odd that, you know, Matt Blaze makes such a, such an astute observation. But as he said, it's a big leap to go from letter to suicide when there's nobody, no note, no third party, no mental health person that can make that, can draw that direct correlation. And I, I think to David's point, it does set a poor precedent. So um, I, I feel for these parents, but I don't think I would, if I were on the jury, I would not find in their favor. What would you do? 800-848-9222. Michael is in New Jersey. Hello, Michael. Michael. Hello. Hey. Yeah. Um, number one, the girl had definitely a mental problem. Um, you never, never, ever kill yourself. What they what they could have done was sued because they could say, well, she's depressed. But you never, never take your life. That's like these kids who were bullied in school. What right, and end do? up shooting up the school. Well, no, they're, they're totally crazy. But the ones who, who were bullied in school, they kill themselves. You know, there's one person, there's always one person who's bullying them, who's making their life terrible. You never, never kill yourself. If anything... You go to school with a bat, and you beat the hell out of the bully. Right. Well, again, we don't want to encourage that either, Michael, right? I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, be encouraging young people to pick up bats because, you know what? Um, I, I'm all for standing up to bullies, but, you know, the thing is, especially when you're dealing with kids, and this is a separate discussion totally, obviously, but when you're dealing with kids, what I might consider playful teasing uh, and good-natured ribbing and having some fun with somebody. Alex Barnard, who's very sensitive, he might consider bullying, right? So if I'm listening to your statements, Michael, I, and I'm Alex Barnard, I'm going to take a bat and, uh, you know, take a swing at somebody that doesn't like my death metal? No, I don't think that's an appropriate way of handling this. 800-848-9222. Paul is in Manhattan. Hello, Paul. Paul. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm, uh, I didn't know I was on. Um, yeah, hi. I felt very obligated to make this phone call. I've never called into a radio station. Um, I want to say that I disagree with you 1,000%. 
if you have worked or been in the arena of college students, they are going through a very fragile time of their life. And many of them are more fragile than others, depending upon whether they're far away from home, what their life experience is. And when they are exposed to a letter that is severe, that is written with, you know, uh, liturgical, any kind of legalese type of language that they're not accustomed to, and it comes from an, a very renowned institution that they have held up uh, for probably years in order just to get in there. They are very, very susceptible to what that institution can write, and a six-page letter can actually be traumatizing. And I think what happens is, is people look back, or they maybe they can't look back at the time that they were at that age and understand where their consciousness was and what their feelings were like and how fragile they were to realities that they had not yet experienced. So when you get a six-page letter from a very formidable institution that you've just about worshipped, it has a great consequence. No, I, I, I don't. I, I can absolutely see that happening, Paul. So needless to say, if you were on this jury, you would be finding in favor of the parents. I would certainly see a case, absolutely. The university had absolutely no right to send a, a an email without any preparation of that length to a collegiate female who uh, is going through all kinds of adult transitional um, uh, issues at that time. It is totally irresponsible, and it could have triggered a suicide attempt. You know, your other callers, I hear them say, this is wrong. Of course it's wrong to commit suicide. But young people go through all kinds of changes at that age. The amount of schizophrenia that uh, manifests itself at that time is unbelievable in this country right now. You add that to various kinds of certain drug use, whether it's prescribed drugs, whether it's marijuana, whether it's alcohol, you put it all together, you get a letter that says, maybe your whole future is ruined. Maybe you are called out and embarrassed for the next five years of your life, it's traumatizing. No, I, so I don't dispute that, Paul. Uh, Paul, great call. Great call. Thank you for Thank you. Uh, such a thoughtful All right. uh, You're commentary. I appreciate that, even um, even if we do end up you know, disagreeing on that. But uh, look, I get what Paul's saying. And again, I don't think Stanford handled this properly. But <sighs> improper handling, insensitive handling, and wrongful death, I, I look... To me, wrongful death is if you make a seatbelt or an airbag that doesn't work when it's supposed to and someone gets into a car accident because of your negligence, right? Uh, or you, you beat up someone and you only intend to beat them up and they end up dying. To me, that's wrongful death. A college sending a letter notifying someone about a future disciplinary hearing, even if the language is a little uh, insensitive and incendiary to say that that 
is actionable. Uh, I, I don't know. I just, I, and I get what Paul's saying. I, look, when I get a letter now from some vaulted institution, if I, you know, when I, whenever I get an email from uh, the president of our radio network or the owner of our radio network, the lawyer for our network, you know, I, I stand up and take notice. And if there's the least bit of criticism, I am freaking out. And I'm a pretty calm, cool, and collected guy. If, uh, if she, and, and, you know, and I'm an adult. So I get what Paul is saying, and I'm not trying to um, diminish this. I just, uh, I, I would not find it in their favor. I hate to say that, but I'm curious what you would do. Uh, we're going to do uh, 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. I want to squeeze in at least one more call here. Maria is in New Jersey. Hello, Maria. Yes, um, I have to disagree with you, Mr. Wonderful. As a point of law, you take the plaintiff as you find him. So uh, if you're saying that she had mental problems, that doesn't matter. Mm. Because now she gets a letter that actually says she's guilty and you must come in instead of saying, like, let's have a meeting. Let's hear what happened. Let's hear how you feel. Whatever that was, which was very bad, they handled it badly. She committed suicide because it brought it to that level. How about kids who are bullied? They win their cases when they've been bullied horribly, and all of a sudden they kill themselves, and they're 10 years old or they're whatever, 15 years old. They win their cases. So that you find the plaintiff, and that's how, as you find the plaintiff, that's how the plaintiff is. Maria, we're going to give you the last word. Thank you. Uh, I agree, especially on the wonderful part of it. Um, those of you that are holding, if you still want to be heard, uh, hold on and we'll get to you. We are going to give you an opportunity to play, uh, the thousand dollar minute in just a minute. Now I got to tell you, I went through these questions with my sister, Claudia earlier. She did very well. In fact, she did so well. I got nervous. These questions were a little too easy. So uh, I hope I don't get in trouble making these questions too easy. She got um, she there was you know she's a young person so she got in trouble with one question that was I guess sort of generational she should have known it because of history and then there's one question that's kind of tough but she got eight out of ten uh, so if Claudia can do it I think you can too be the seventh caller now to eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 that's eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 and uh, if you're the seventh caller. We will play the $1,000 Minute. We'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Yo, VIP. Let's kick it. And listen, I sit back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly, flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. To the extreme, I rock a mic like a vandal. Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Dance, caress the speaker that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom. Deadly. The great Vanilla Ice, one of the great musical artists of all time. 
It was uh, actually Mr. Ice's birthday on October 31st. So I did uh, request that we play this song on October 31st. It is now November 28th. Now it uh, only takes me 29 days from the point I request a song to the point that it's uh, played. I'm all for that. You know why? Teaches patience. To you, to me. The guy, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's these people that win prizes on this show, and they um, don't immediately hear back about uh, when they're getting their prize, and it takes a week, it takes two weeks, and people are ready to riot. If I can wait 29 days to hear a Vanilla Ice song, then, you know, you could wait for stuff, too. By the way, my mom um, got her poster of the the movie poster of us uh that you know made in uh with Prometheus the alien and she loved it she had it framed and uh it, it's really a nice looking poster I, re- I will say these guys did a a great job on um you know on on designing it and printing it so shout out to Joe Gina Stephanie the whole other side of midnight team. Uh, you could check out all the items at uh, I believe it's other side of midnight store dot com. Other side of midnight store dot com. And uh, there's oh, actually uh, just, just go to that. That it's it's not that it's something else. But it's uh, you can go to wabc radio store dot com and uh, check it out there. Um, there's a lot of great stuff, including that poster. All right. Uh, without further ado, we should have announced like a Black Friday sale or something. I didn't think to do that. That would have been fun. All right. Without further ado, let us play. The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you. As I mentioned, my sister Claudia got eight out of ten of these questions correct. So I'm thinking if she can do it, I think you probably can too. Uh, let's meet today's contestant, Arthur, on Staten Island. Hello, Arthur. Hi. How are you? I'm great, Arthur. Uh, what neighborhood of Staten Island do you live in? Uh, uh, actually, actually Mid Island. Okay. All right. I'm not trying to throw you there, Arthur. That was not a, meant to be a trick question. Small talk, no, no, you know. Okay. Arthur, have you heard this contest before? Yes. Great. So you know what to do. We don't have to explain the rules or anything. No. no. Great. All right. If you're ready, we'll get started. Okay. Thank you. Sure. What month is it? It's December. I mean, it's November. All right. What rapper recently dined at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump? Uh, Kid Rock. No, Arthur, sorry. Um, it was uh, Kanye West. Kanye West, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, Kanye West. As far as we could tell, Kid Rock uh, has not dined recently at uh, Mar-a-Lago. Um, let's see. Can we, uh, let me, can we double check that, that Kid Rock has not been at Mar-a-Lago? Um, and what's recently, right? I guess he was there about three years ago. I don't consider that recently. And I don't know that I consider Kid Rock a rapper. So, 
I can't accept Kid Rock. Especially because you read any newspaper in America today, and Kanye West and Trump are all over this with their uh, with their dinner over there. So, so that's unfortunate. Um, all right. So, Arthur, hang on. Give uh, Kenneth your information. We'll give you something. 800-848-9222. A couple of you holding on various subjects. We'll get to you. Mike is in Parts Unknown. Hello, Mike. Yes. Hey, Mike, what, do, you called uh, Rudy Giuliani the other day, right? I certainly did. Yeah. I called Rudy. Yes, I did, Frank. Yeah. So yeah. I heard your call. Your call was very thoughtful, very interesting. But there was one thing that perplexed me about your phone call. So okay. you you mentioned your father, and, and you've talked to me about him. He sounds like a great guy. But you said, yes. my father was friends with Alphonse. Now, Rudy Giuliani and Al D'Amato can't stand one another. And I was curious why, why you made I didn't know him. that. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. No. They, they happened to play cards, Pinochle, together with his brother. And Dad knew a few friends. I'm not going to mention it on the air. But uh, I did. And I had a nice conversation. Frank, and I have to thank you because I asked many times if I can, you know, it would be great if I could speak to John Casamitidis with Dominic, and I did. And, uh, you know, 52 years, supermarkets, manager, district manager, and my mother, Nancy, uh, just passed away. And I got to tell you this. She would wake up a couple times in the middle of the night and say, Mom, you got to tune in. You like talk radio. And she did tune in, tune into your show. Well, that's great. I'm uh, happy to hear that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, I've done whole segments on the horrible things that D'Amato continues to say about Rudy Giuliani. Uh, and I was just I was just I, I didn't know that you didn't know that. I just thought it was an interesting thing to uh, to mention. But that's neither here nor there. Um, what's yeah, on your I, mind this morning, Mike? Well, I'll tell you the truth. Um, you know, always good uh, uh, chatting with Ken. And uh, there's always that Cortland connection, like I said, to uh, John Casamitidis with, with uh, Bernie, his daughter, you know, uh, uh, volleyball, my son, wide receiver, same graduating class ceremony. Here's the thing um, about that Stanford incident. I think they're going to make an out-of-court settlement because that's outrageous to send to fire off a six-page email. Uh, and she was, you know, as, as – as good an athlete, forget about being an athlete. I mean, I was an athlete, whatever. Uh, uh, people are athletes, but she was a great student. And this was very traumatic for her to receive. And it was an assault, like one caller said, with coffee. They should have an adequate settlement against this young woman who took her own life. And I have friends, Frank, I said on your show previously, uh, whose, whose kids, you know, a few of them took their own life. And a friend of mine's younger brother, I'm not going to mention on the radio, he had a sports radio talk show, you know, but it's traumatic. And shame on Stanford. They make enough, you know, dead presidents. And shame on them for doing it in the manner in which they did it. And I hope they receive the family an adequate settlement, you know. Yeah, um, well, look, I hear what you're saying, Mike, and I thought Paul brought up some really great points uh, to that effect as well. I just And thank you for the call. And uh, I'm sorry again about your mom's passing. I... Um, I don't want to repeat everything that I just said, but I'm not there. I'm not on the same page. I feel awful for this family. I feel awful for this young woman. I do think Stanford ha- handled this inappropriately. One, I'm not convinced that um, that there's sufficient proof that this letter caused her to kill herself. Two, if a letter does cause you to kill yourself, I think there are some really uh, uh, there's some other fundamental pr- problems with with what you're going through 
So, um, and I don't know that that's Stanford's fault. Um, I wish Stanford had handled it better. I And I am concerned about the cadre of suicide-chasing lawyers that this could open up. Jeffrey is in Queens. Hello, Jeffrey. Frank. Hey, Jeffrey, how was your uh, Thanksgiving dinner? I know you worked hard on that. I know I didn't, but thanks. Yeah, Frank, um, uh, I, I'll summarize, I, I, before I can get, get to the Stanford case, I'll summarize what I, my point the other day. Something like, you give me 300 bucks, Frank, I can make $3,000 worth of what, what a restaurant would charge for turkey dinner, okay? All right. Um, the 10 to 1 ratio. Yeah, 10 yeah, to yeah, 1? Yeah, That's a pretty bold claim. I know, no, I know. You had the Wells Fargo statistic, Wells Fargo statistic, so I'll give you my statistic. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Listen, Frank, on, on the football thing, I want to say, just, you know, the last 50 years, you can imagine how many, uh, since football has become such a big moneymaker for these colleges, you can imagine how the athletes always get a break when they sexually harass women. Uh, you know, I mean, big statement, Frank. What, you want you want to agree with that, or just say I, I'm off base on that completely? Wait, wait, wait. So, do I think football players get a break when they sexually harass women? I'm saying because of the money that, that, that that's involved, what football players do to these, you know, to these colleges. I, I could see that happening, right? It so, it. I, I could see that happening. I don't know what the situation was here. I've also seen many instances on college campuses of young men being wrongly accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault. So I'm hesitant to draw an overly broad generalization when I don't know any of the facts of this case. But let's say you're right. Let's say this football player did do the wrong thing and raped a minor. I'm all for, you know, uh, punishing that guy. But it's not for other students to take it upon themselves in this, you know, coffee vigilanteism and throw hot coffee at them. Right, vigilantism is it's born out of um, when people's frustration when there isn't justice, and maybe, maybe you know, fifty years of seeing no justice, and this woman has seen it, you know, or her friends and the generation before her has seen it. That that you know, and I'm, I, I know, I'm trying to put myself in her shoes. That they call that a vigilantic response. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, Frank. All right. Well, so any comment about how you would vote if you were on the jury here? All right. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. Steve, go ahead. What's on your mind? Yeah, hey, what's going on, Frank? Um, first of all, over the weekend, Disco Duck kept mentioning your name. I had to dump it. I just couldn't take it anymore. I had to dump the show. And if good friends call each other names, why can't you know Alphonse and and Rudy call each other names and be good friends, right? But Disco D- Duck wouldn't stop using your name. Yeah, well, first of all, um, uh, Curtis and I are good friends, and Aldamato and Rudy Giuliani are not. That's at least not currently. Right, so it could go either way. Um, before I get to that case out in Stanford, um, you have a case now. You got big competition right now. I'm going to let you know. Good thing I'm calling in now. I appreciate so that. Draw back. No, draw back some of the audience. You are getting big competition for a few minutes anyway. Um, this guy, Zach Wilson, the quarterback from the Jets, he got benched. 
and they just kept piling on this kid. Oh, his parents are rich. His family's rich. He said the wrong thing. Are they crazy? Do you hear some of the things these professional athletes say they piled on? And I noticed a couple of weeks earlier, I call him Jeff Sunday, but his name is Jeff Saturday. He was a, uh, an NFL player. He was a center, but now he's doing commentary on TV. They hired him right out of the TV boot, and they put him in as the coach of the, of the Colts. And people are jumping all over this guy, a multimillionaire guy who does a lot of television. He's a former coach. He's crying on TV. This is where the country's gone. It really has gone crazy and nuts, and it doesn't know where to really direct their real attention. I think on an emotional level, most people are stunted or they just can't deal with reality. Now, the case out in Stanford, I would tell the people there's a GoFundMe um, fund started for this, for this girl's family, and it's drawn in a lot of money. All right. We don't know all the all the evidence that you correctly said. You have to know all the evidence. They said they, they say suicide and self-inflicted wounds. Well, what what happened to this girl? How did she die? That's what I want to know. And is it a possibility that the coroner messed it up like last week we were talking about somebody? And also, you know, the player, the alleged player, they don't really emphasize he sexually assaulted a girl. This is allegedly now a girl was a minor. Did she throw the coffee at him while he was? Sexually assaulting no, her? No, it was afterwards. All right, that's all right. It was afterwards. Okay, so those, those are all the points of evidence that have to come out, and then we will know. As far as this, the university, they could have handled it better. They mm. could have had the coach call her into the office first or the athletic director and talk to her. They don't have to, I know other people love emails today, but emails are cold. It's delivered you're right. Cold. You're right about that, Steve. Steve, I have to run 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My thanks to Andy B. for this dynamic theme song. Uh, all right, without further ado, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard on any subject you want for 15 seconds. All you have to do is dial. Uh, 800-848-9222 could be a joke, a comment, a question, whatever the case may be, as long as it's 15 seconds or less. The name of the game is... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Neil on Staten Island. Hey, Frank, instead of beating around the badger hairbrush, why not call Gillette and ask them to send a shapeologist to be on the show? That's an idea. That's an idea. Ralph in New Jersey. Thank you, uh, Frankie, for playing that music. Uh, the world that we know by Pratinata, I did not request it, but thank you uh, for playing that in your bumper uh, music. Go, Tom, go, 2024. No, it's not, not about the what, about Asim. It's about the Duval Sundance. E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, 
Frank, I've been back and forth uh, there with suicidal issues involving multiskeletal problems. You know the swagger man, Eric Adams? He's sued by Curtis Lewa. Sue John Lindsay for suicide. Raji! Hello, Frank. Why not allow one wrong answer or one pass in order to give participants the chance to win, say, $300 instead of the $1,000. Mike. Good morning, Frank. I'm going to take uh, Mama Lecter's advice and try new things. So dinner today, short ribs, kidney beans, and a bed of linguine, and a nice rosé. Uh, no, if you were really taking her advice, you'd drink a bottle of Chianti. <laughs> Louie. John. Trump won, Trump won, 2024 again. Danny. Weekends, Disco Duck and Kamala Harris. You hear the dude that keeps laughing through the whole show and Disco Ducks keep talking about Frank? Go, be can it go, 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 go, be can it go. And finally, Ray in New Jersey. Ray from Raritan. Yeah, Trump has got to get back to office. Biden has sold out to China. China is controlling him, and we need Trump to save America. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. All right. On that promissory note, let's uh, call it a show. Be back tomorrow. Um, We'll at least have one person hypnotized. I'm working on trying to get a few others as well. We'll see where we are by this time tomorrow. And uh, we got some other surprises up my sleeve for tomorrow as well uh, that uh, I think you'll enjoy. And, uh, you know, on Friday, my wife, Carmine, and I are going to Mexico for my brother-in-law's wedding. So I'm not going to be here Friday. Uh, I believe the disco duck, as Steve characterized him, will be here in my stead. But we'll find out for sure and let you know tomorrow. Frank Moreno, good day.